Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Is you talking, talking heads to my talking heads? Head? Heads? Head? The comprehensive and encyclopedic compendium of all things talking heads. This is good. Rock and roll up. <clears throat> Music! Good. Rock and roll. Music. Rock and roll. Good. Good. Rock and roll. Rock music. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Have an exciting show for you today. Before I get to that, I want to introduce myself. My name is Scott Ackerman. I am the main creative force behind you talking, talking heads to my talking head. What? The also the spiritual heart of the podcast. Chopped liver over here. (laughs) Meanwhile, over here we have chopped liver. Uh, He is. (laughs) I just said that. Like, is it like using the expression? Never mind. Keep going. God, this is why you'll never be the main creative forces. I'm sorry. Behind you talking, talking heads to my talking head because you just get in the way. You're like a speed bump. Keep going. It's like I'm driving down Keep Podcast going. Street at 65, 85, 105 miles an hour, and suddenly Mr. Speedbump comes along and forces me to to dip, you know, down to, to 15 MPH. You know what, Scott? And I've I've wanted to say this now for five, six years. And now that we're face to face, I finally can. And I finally drummed up the courage to say this to you face to face. Hi. Hi. So good to see you. You too. Uh, This is Adam Scott is here. Hello, Adam. Hi. Hi. I'm so glad that you stopped being a coward and were able to say that to my face. Finally. It felt really, Feels, feels really good. Feels really good to say hello to a friend. It always does. Always. There are times when you see a friend and you'll be like, all right, cut the shit. And you'll just get down to brass tacks right away. And there will be no pleasantries at all. And that's usually, you know, when you see friends, that's usually how it goes. Is like, all right, cut the shit. Yeah. That's the first thing. There's a, I think it's Zogby. Someone did a poll. Just like, what is the very first thing you say to your friends? And it was 
overwhelming. It was like 78 to 99%, something like that, somewhere in that range. Everyone in the United States, at least, first thing they say, all right, cut the shit. And then they yeah. continue their relationship. That's right. And that's just the United States. I mean, that I don't know what they do up there uh, in Canucksville, Canada, they, you know, I mean, they're far and too Bob polite. And Doug maybe. McKen- I don't know what Bob and Doug McKenzie are up <laughs> yeah, to. Yeah, wearing there. their toques. But uh, by the uh, way, when you yeah. were a kid, mm-hmm. and when I say kid, I mean anywhere from two years old to 32 years sure. old. Sure, that's a great range. Uh, did you watch Strange Brew over and over and over again? Weirdly, I didn't when it came out. Wait a minute, is this an episode of I Love Films? Uh, I think it is. Hey, everybody. Welcome to I Love Films. This is Scott. And this is Scott. And we're talking about films today. We're talking well, about... what else would we be talking about? That is what we talk about. <laughs> that is true. We're talking about... Um, I got three little words for you that, that are going to excite the film lover in all of us. Se, ne... Ma. Love it. Love it. And when I'm talking ma, I'm talking, of course... Mom, pa, kettle? Uh, no, no, no. I'm talking about uh, the recent film, ma. The recent horror film. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Ma. That's ma. Good. ma. 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 Watch out where you're going. <laughs> Ma's coming. <laughs> Strangely, uh, ma was, was not as good of a... a, a uh, horror villain as freddy krueger or jason hey ma yeah <laughs> come on in here doesn't have the the ring to it <laughs> hey ma um but of course we're talking about films uh i mean the whole breadth of films from uh no. you know from that train coming right at the screen to which freaked the fucking shit out of people yeah it freaked the fucking shit out of me me Are you too. kidding me I was there for the first, very first screening of it. Really? It was like an industry screening? It was an industry screening on the Paramount lot. (laughs) Got an invite through SAG. (laughs) SAG Awards Committee? Yeah. (laughs) This is very inside baseball talk, but that is, you know, we're not talking about baseball. That's a different podcast. Oh, yeah. Go, uh... Wait a second. Is this an episode of I Love Baseball? (laughs) It might be. Hey, everyone. Welcome to I Love Baseball. This is Scott. And this is Scott. And, of course, this is uh, the podcast. It's a subsidiary of Barstool Sports. Where yeah. What's we, up, guys? What's up, fuckers? Uh, Fuck you. Uh, where we talk about baseball, the crack of the bat. nothing else. And cracking beers and high-fiving. That's right. <laughs> uh, fuck. <laughs> That's us high-fiving. Uh, That's us cracking beers. Hey, how's baseball played? Take a ball. Take a bat. And you just start fucking around. Yeah, it'll work itself out. You know what I mean? Yep. It's like having sex. Take your ball, take your bat, take your bat. You'll figure it out. Yeah. If you have any sense at all, you That's will the figure birds and out the bees how to talk do it. that we all do. Birds do it. Bees do it. Even uh, chipmunks in the trees do it. You know uh, what don't I mean? They? Don't they? Hey, uh, I like baseball, but uh, the World Series, huh? Ugh. I'm running out of things to talk about when it comes to baseball. 
especially when we're not playing baseball right now. No, uh, it's not. It's not appropriate right now because of uh, the. But you know, the World Series this year was exciting. Was it? Yeah, it had a lot of ups and downs. Uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers. Oh, uh, home team. They they played in the uh, World Series. They played in the World they Series. Played. That's they crazy. Were there. Why didn't I was- watch that? I'm the host of this podcast. I love baseball. Oh, did you miss it this year? I miss. I think I was watching. Um, I think I was watching The Circle on Netflix instead. Yeah, I was watching Emily in Paris, so I missed it. <laughs> Emily in Paris. That's right. <laughs> That's how it's pronounced, by the way. So it rhymes. Emily mm. in Paris. Oh. Emily huh. in Paris. Okay. Oh, let me. I'm writing that down. Yeah, write it down, please. Anyway, baseball. I don't know. There's not not a lot to talk about. No, no. Neither of us are particularly uh, interested. We don't follow uh, baseball, nor are we interested in it. (laughs) So why are we doing this? I don't know, but this podcast is so popular. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we hate to give it up. I know that we have no interest in it, but... uh, It's beyond me that it's... uh, it's, What is it? In the top two or three on iTunes? Yeah, top two or three. That's uh, a great... They have this category on iTunes, top two or three. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes it'll be two, sometimes it's three, (laughs) and you just never know. And you would think that chart would be super long, but it's only like two or three. It's two or three things every every time you look at it. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye. Fiction blacked out, fiction flies me back to Baltimore to wait for you. But I'm stuck here too. <laughs> Good job. Oh, wow. boy. Wow. But uh, speaking of baseball, great baseball films, The Natural. Oh, God. a league of their own. Uh, a league of their own. A league of their own. A league of their own. That's, by the way, the way I said it is the way I guess I've never seen it, but uh, uh, John Lovitz, I would imagine, plays a manager or the owner of the team or something. I would think for just from context clues from me seeing clips or whatever. Am I right or am I, mean, I wrong? Tom Hanks? No, no, no. Like John Lovitz, isn't he in it? I don't remember. <laughs> Okay, well, I think he's in it, and I think he must, just from the types of characters John Lovitz plays, he probably is either a a cigar. He's a a reporter. Yeah, he's a reporter who's reporting on, wait, what are all these women doing playing baseball? Or he's the owner of the team who's going like, you can't hire women or whatever. But that's, I was saying it in his character of like, a league of their own? Ah, Yes. I'm going to look up, by the way, is John Lovitz. What do you want me to say to Google? Is John Lovitz in A League of Their Own? Sure. That'll that'll do the trick, I think. I always, uh, I love that scene in Three Amigos with John Lovitz, Phil Hartman. It just comes back, Google just comes back, yes. Take the Amigos clothes. <laughs> yes. Or right. that's Phil Hartman that says that. Take, Take the, the Amigos, amigos clothes. clothes. Oh, and Joe Montaigne. That's such a good film. Uh, he is in a league of their own, and wait, no, he's not. <laughs> oh no, he is. He plays Ernie he Ernie Capadino, AAG PBL Scout. Great film, great actor. This is what we talk about on I Love Films. Uh, you know what? I I don't think any, that film has gotten its due. But is as, as far as I'm concerned, there's one line in that movie that deserves 
to be one of the all-time Enshrined classics. in the film Hall of Fame, in the film Dialogue Hall of Fame, which, by the way, uh, I believe is in Cooperstown, right next to the Baseball Hall of Fame. That's right. Isn't it? They're yep. next-door neighbors, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. And the, the film Dialogue, uh, uh, the Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame is always like, hey, stop being so loud, because it's always like, I'm walking here! And yeah. They're noisy and, neighbors. Uh, we need a bigger boat. <laughs> we Hey, look at the super big guy. And, He's eating uh, our boat. Where's the bathroom from Sex Lies and Videotape? <laughs> and Sex in the City. That is and the, Sex in the City. The one line of dialogue that Sex Lies and Videotape and Sex in the City share is like where's an the bathroom? iconic <laughs> famous line from both from both uh, pieces of entertainment. <laughs> and every, it's interesting because once you notice it, like. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how many times I saw all the Star Wars films and I never really noticed the fact that they say I got a bad feeling about this yeah. in every film. Yeah. But once you notice it, it's hard not to notice it. Um, sure. And the same thing with Sex and the City. Like every episode you watch now, it's like when someone goes, I've got to go to the bathroom. It's like, yeah, oh, they said it again. And you can tell in Sex, Lies and Videotape, at least since it was a theatrical release, you can tell right after the line is said, they edited in a bit of a pause because they knew there would be a reaction. Yeah, there'd definitely be applause break. Uh, right. People uh, assuming it's intermission and yeah. uh, in going to refill their popcorn. So they took like a 10-minute pause. 10-minute pause, and the actors just sit there <laughs> in the scene. <laughs> Listening to someone going to the bathroom. No, well, they sit there before James Spader actually goes to find the bathroom. <laughs> they just stand there. Which, by the way, Sex in the City 2... They're having more sex in a different city. Um, they yeah, don't in the say, Middle East. They don't say it, which is why it flopped. Yeah, they needed to at least on the flight over there. Someone needed to say, "Where's the shitter?" <laughs> which would then lead into the iconic line of dialogue: "I have to go to the bathroom." That was one of my favorite scenes from Sex in the City too. Is when they're on the flight, Sex in the City, going as well. to the. Six, sex in the City also. They're going to the Middle East on a flight in first class, sitting at a bar on the mm. 747, raising their glasses to their nannies. <laughs> to their nannies? <laughs> it was the most relatable <laughs> scene. Very, I've, I mean, honestly, I've done almost all of that. So <laughs> yeah. Um, other than the nannies part, I think I've done all of it. I tell you, there it, it feels like it it should be illegal when you're on a plane with a bar, ooh. But yeah, it's listen, but uh, but they let you do don't it. want the pilot to uh, to be you. Don't yeah, want it's like a hey, pilot sitting next to you. Suddenly you're watching uh, the movie Flight here, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, Jerry Foster. Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> flight. Wait, oh, flight plan. Flight plan. Yeah, you didn't let me finish. I was taking oh, I'm a long sorry. pause. I interrupted you. Plan. Okay, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're talking about great films this episode. Um, let me hype what <clears throat> we're talking about on this episode. We're talking about um, one film in particular. We're talking about 1986's True Stories. Oh, yeah. True Stories. Classic. Directed by Mr. Burns himself. And uh, coming up a little later, we will have, uh, we'll be talking to one of the co-writers of the film, a great actor, uh, Stephen Tobolowski, will be oh, joining man. us. So, and Now, he, this is exciting. Yes. Now, this is podcasting. This, now, this 
is podcasting. <laughs> like everything we've been doing, it's been on the periphery. The whole 13, this, 14 years of the medium, throw it away. This, yeah. this is, is the first day. That's right. This is podcasting. This is, you, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, you can delineate like which part of the Bible it is right, by if Jesus right, shows right. up. This sure. is the Jesus of podcasting. This, right? Not even when Stephen Toblowski comes on. This, right now. This, this is, is Jesus. <laughs> this is Jesus. Well, Jesus and podcasting are the same thing. We hope that uh, we don't get crucified for this, if you know what I mean. That's a little play on words. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, Jesus yeah. got crucified. I, I don't know I, if you remember that. I think I understand. That, it's uh, I just. Are yeah. you looking it up? What? I'm looking it up. Siri, did Jesus get crucified? <laughs> <laughs> Siri, what does Scott mean by crucified? Um. I think, no, I don't get it. I don't. I don't understand. But it's uh, I, the greatest story ever told. But it has a real sad ending, doesn't it? I mean, dude up there, two two yeah. uh, common thieves next to him, to the right and to the left of him. Yeah, bugging him. They while don't he's get just it. They don't to get die. how important this is. Yeah, it's like, come on, guys. Like, oh, what did you steal? A, a, a Hyundai? I'm Jesus right. here. I ain't done what nothing wrong. Hot wire a Ford Mustang. Come on. They never guys. would have been able to because it was so long ago. Yeah, they didn't know how. No one knew how to no, hotwire no Mustangs for thousands of years. Yeah, they were people were just driving them all over the place, but only people who had keys, only people who had keys. There were some people who tried to hotwire the the horse, the Mustangs. They would like yeah. fiddle around down there and be like, "Here, I what if what if I took this thing?" And then they, and then they would just get like a <laughs> gallon of sperm. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, this is I Love Films, of course. Great film, Passion of the Christ. Passion of the Christ. Um, oh, yeah. Did that happen in Passion of the Christ? I think it did. I think that's... Uh, they, and then they ripped it off in um, Kingpin, I believe. That's right. That's where that came from. Yep. Um, but we're talking about great films. We're talking about films like uh, Raging Bull and uh raking bull raking raking bull um where i don't know if you remember but uh uh uh, roberto de niro gained approximately uh 40 pounds in order to to look more like uh more like me right now (laughs) i think was he in quarantine yeah i think he was i don't know i you know i was confused the entire time that i watched it but i assumed he was playing me because suddenly he got he ballooned up um after he stopped working (laughs) very relatable (laughs) to me yeah there wasn't a quarantine involved but it's a really cool story i um of a guy who balloons up yeah after (laughs) after his job ends (laughs) and also that story has a it's about not only ballooning up, but it is about balloons. They have a lot. There's a lot of. There's balloon. a lot of balloons. Yeah, that. Yeah, uh, it is in black and white. But much like Schindler's List, there are pink and orange and yellow balloons. Sometimes baby just blue too. There will flo- be floating through throughout scenes. Just floating, floating. throughout scenes. I do. Uh, when I when I first got a DVD, when DVDs first came around, I got a DVD of Raging Bull, and of course mm-hmm. it was like you know, the crown jewel of my collection. Like, oh man, this is going to be awesome. And then I put it in, I was watching it alone at one point and I had only seen it once or twice before then. This is the nineties. And suddenly like there were little, 
glimpses of color in it, like things, mm-hmm. like certain things in the background would be yellow a lot. And mm-hmm. I'd be like, oh, wow, I'd never noticed it before. But but Raking Bull did what Spielberg did in Schindler's List, where hmm. there are pops of color everywhere. Yeah. And I kept watching it and going like, this is so crazy because it's it, it, like every scene this is happening. Yeah. And then I realized my DVD player was broken <laughs> and it just was like something weird in it was making the image yellow. Like, like it had, Oh, are you, are you serious? Yes. Yes. Oh. And so That's I watched so the entire thing, like going like, this is a really interesting cinematography style that I'd never yeah. noticed in the times I've watched Raging Bull in the theater. Watch it on VHS, like 40 times and never right. noticed this, <laughs> but on DVD, um, it's so crystal clear. I remember right when I got my first DVD player, Naomi gave me a DVD player for Christmas the first year we were going out, I guess. And wow. It was, so uh, she knew a, you loved films. Oh, listen, it's the first thing she knew because it's the first. After I say cut the bullshit, I say I love films. <laughs> well, first you said I have a new number two. You went in the bathroom. Came back. <laughs> came back and said later, cut the shit. Cut the shit. Right, cut the shit. I love I love films. films. Would you like to spend the rest of your life with me? <laughs> Would you like but to grab this getting, bat and ball and figure it out? Yeah, uh, getting the that D- DVD player and like Goodfellas was one of the first ones I bought, and like having yeah. friends over and being like, "Look at this picture!" Yeah, and everyone kind of pretending to be impressed, but it couldn't have been <laughs> that. Impressed because now looking at DVDs, they look like shit. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, now compare them to like 4K Blu-rays and stuff. I am. Um, but, uh, but it was considerably better than VHSs. Yeah, you, yeah, you're right. I, there, uh, I remember the one in uh, for LA Confidential. One thing about DVDs is occasionally they had to be dual-sided because they you couldn't fit enough yeah. information on the top end, so they, they yeah. had to... Or a double disc. Yeah, so instead of doing double discs... LA Confidential was so long that it had to it had to like stop relaying oh, the information from those. the top and then go to the bottom. Yeah, you but had to flip it. You well, sometimes you had to flip it, but LA Confidential it would just like um Oh, I think I think the LA Confidential one was they they put one a bunch of information in one way and then they like clockwise and then they did a bunch of information counterclockwise but there was a tiny almost imperceptible pause in the movie when kevin spacey disgraced former actor kevin spacey um got shot spoilers obviously you're listening to i love films you've watched every film so you know exactly what happens but he gets shot and dies at the kitchen table and right Mm -hmm. as he's dying there was just like a little pause while it then switched and started to reverse Mm-hmm. And I was like looking at it going, what the fuck? Because I'd never, this has never happened on a DVD player before. I was just like, did he freeze? Is that like, is that his acting? Right. And I like went back, and wa- I went back and watched it several times going like, he's like frozen for a second. And then I, re- then I figured out it was the DVD player. A lot of stuff happening with DVD Man. players where I can't figure it out. A lot of action with the, the early DVD experience. You know, I, I remember those early DVD days just in, spending so much money on these fucking things. And like the more deluxe. Well, I mean, Naomi, and, Naomi spent the money. Oh, you, you're not talking about the players. No, the, the DVDs themselves. Well, every time you buy a DVD, you would buy a player for it as well. 
Yeah, well, I yeah, with my collection of DVDs, I <laughs> sure. had hundreds of players. <laughs> because That's every anyone. DVD deserves its own player. That was one piece of information back in those early days that people just didn't didn't quite sink in was that you only needed one player. But we eventually figured it out. <laughs> sure, yeah. Hundreds of DVD players later. And yeah. then you have to buy, you know, of course, a DVD player storage. All of the wires necessary yeah. for hundreds of players in your apartment. But um, yeah. So but you I had, had quite the collection. Yeah. And now it's all just either in storage or at Amoeba. <laughs> Well, I think I told you maybe on this very show that um, <clears throat> I walked into my condo one day and uh, thousands, not maybe not that, no, hundreds, hundreds of DVDs were suddenly just gone. Someone had walked in and taken oh, them all. Right. <laughs> and we think it was my neighbor. Um, but um, because when Kulop went up to tell her and to warn her, hey, someone ripped us, ripped us off, she was like, they're not in here. Do you want to check my place? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's not exactly the Sneaky. reaction you're looking for. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, but, uh, by the way, the film we're talking about, True Stories, did you, uh, uh, you didn't watch a Blu-ray of it, did you? Did you watch it? Uh, you you rented it, is that right, on uh, iTunes or of something? Of what? True Stories, the film we're oh, talking yeah, about. Oh, yeah, on iTunes. The Criterion Blu-ray is exceptional. Looks amazing. I don't know how your transfer was, but. Well, uh, the, the iTunes one. Uh, looks really good, but I was I was because I knew there was a criteria. I wish it was on the Criterion uh, channel, but it is not. It's not. Ah, uh, that's the thing. That's the thing. Um, but we are talking about that Criterion channel, though. Yeah, pretty outstanding. I don't have it because I have so many. I, I buy the actual Blu-rays. Why do you buy Blu-rays still? Because they're not available on the channel and. We're, this is the exact conversation we have on our sister show about buying music. <laughs> so you can have it because things go away on channels. Not really. Like you wanted I, to watch True Stories and it's not on the Criterion channel. And instead I got the nice little package that has uh, not only the the movie in, in very sharp, uh, beautiful Blu-ray, but it also has uh, the soundtrack and it has the uh, the the uh, complete soundtrack. Uh, for the first time ever released, and it has you can get on iTunes, sure, but it also has this uh, wonderful uh, booklet that is in the oh. style of a uh, World Weekly News that has a lot of essays from different people, and uh, and it has all the bonus features that uh, are not, I'm sure, not on the Criterion channel. All the bonus features are on YouTube, and I could get a PDF of that newspaper in Who, for me seconds for me. I'm not yeah, getting... will you make a PDF of that yeah, and send right. it to me? All right, let me get my scanner out. Hold on. Hold on, I'm scanning it. How Thank many you. you want every page as a new page? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I got to do this after the show. Okay. Um, because we have a big show coming up. Any, uh, by the way, what's uh, any any uh, feature film you've seen recently that you want to uh, uh, talk about with our listeners here of I Love Films? Ooh, yes. I watched a film uh, night before last that I found uh, very interesting, very intriguing, and very good. Okay. This is, I mean, this is everything yep. that I Love Films likes to cover. It Films that are interesting, is, films that are good, films that are, what'd you say, very good? Intriguing. Intriguing. Did I say that? I yeah. love, Scott, I love that word. Mm. Is it, it's spelled 
like it would be intriguing. Yeah, it's a strange. That's part of the re- wait. Is this uh, an episode of I Love Words? It might be. What a word. Welcome to I Love Words. This is Scott. And this is Scott. And re- words. Words. You know what? Can I just point something out? Not only am I saying words right now, but your introduction to this podcast wouldn't was be words. possible without words. They were words. Their podcasting would probably not exist without words. If they were just uh, random grunting sounds? No, there's no there's no question. I mean, you know, someone would listen to grunting and farting and shitting. We but talk about not everyone. We talk about the cavemen and how they invented the wheel. Oh, so boring, darling. Words the are the isn't first a wheel thing. without the word wheel. Yes. That's, that's what I always say. When they invented the wheel, you know what they did? They pointed at it, at it and said wheel. Words were the first inventions. There you go. That's what you're that's the point. That's what I love about you, Scott, is that you're I love always you. trying to drive home the point. I love you. Those are some words Sorry? that I've wanted to say for a while. I love you. And I appreciate that. And those words carry weight because they are words. Three little words that have a little more weight than other words. Like if you were to take three other random words like, yeah. uh, you know, fish, frame, uh, bozos. <laughs> Fish Frame Bozos. Is this an episode of Fish Frame Bozos? <laughs> yeah. Hey everyone, welcome to Fish Frame Bozos. <laughs> I don't know what we talk about, but this is Scott. Oh, and this is Scott. And I don't this I don't know what we talk about on this show. I really don't. Oh, well, we talk about fish, <laughs> we talk about frames, and I'll tell you, I'll never get tired of talking, talking about, about bozos. bozos. No. So three separate things. We're not talking about fish frame bozos. No, 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 no. Are we the There's fish frame bozos? Huh. That's, or are our that, fans fish frame bozos? See, that's the eternal question. That's, I don't know. Anyway, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs> um, anyway, words. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Good apps. Two great apps. Yeah, not apps. bad. Not bad. Well, um, what was the film that you saw, by the way? Oh, it's called The Nest, the, uh, the Jude Law, Carrie Coon movie. It's so good. The Nest? The Nest. <laughs> Is that what you said? Or The Nest? <laughs> the Nest. It's <laughs> like short for it's, nasty. It's about doing the nasty. <laughs> Did you say Nest? The nest. Oh, okay. It's uh, about this the um, temperature gauge in your home. <laughs> okay, great. Cannot wait. I have a lot of trouble with that whenever it's offline. So I, I hope that this is very instructive. Are you sure you didn't yeah. just watch a YouTube video, a how-to video about how to turn on your nest? Hmm. It, it may be. It may be a YouTube video, except Carrie Coon and Jude Law are doing the instructional. <laughs> Jude Law, the guy I stood next to at a Vampire Weekend show in New York. Yeah, that one. That oh, exact okay. guy. Interesting. Well, um, great to hear your recs uh, and effects. And uh, we need to take a break here on I Love Film. Oh, okay. And uh, when we come back, we are going to be talking about 
the film, and it is a film, uh, True Stories, 1986, Mr. Burns co-wrote and singularly directed it, and um, very exciting to talk about this, and we will have a, a wonderful guest. We'll have Stephen Tobolowski will be here with us. Um, we need to take a break. When we come back, we will have more from I Love Films. Hey, Scott. Yes. I just have a quick question. Is this yeah. the first guest we've ever had on I Love on Films? On I Love Films? Hell to the yeah, it is. It is? Yeah, this is exciting. Okay, so, great. Uh, yeah, we're going to be uh, talking with him when we come back. So we'll be right back with more I Love Films after this. Come on back. <laughs> Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to Isla Films. This is I Love Films, isn't it? Not I Love Film. I think we have two different shows, Adam, don't we? I Love Films and I Love Film. That's right. This is I Love Films. This is I Love Films. What is yeah. the difference between these two shows? Why do we do two different shows? Well, the guys that do the show I Love Film, they're specifically talking about physical film that you work oh, with. They're, oh, like film processing and yeah, Kodak. Sure. I'm sure comes up a lot. Yeah. There's a real Color love separation. for that stuff. And these guys yeah. like to Nitrates. Nitrates. I mean, that's a there different show. So we, we don't want to... Literally explosive. Literally, yes. This is I Love Films, though, where we... The, the podcast where we talk about the medium of film. We talk about aspect ratios. Uh, oh, yeah. We talk about how many images per second. And I believe it's something around 29.33 or something per second, or maybe that's TV. I, as the host or co-host rather of Isla Films, I should really figure this out. Maybe it's 24. Absolutely. It, 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 that stuff doesn't really matter, Scott. I think in the realm of, uh, of this particular podcast, we we just like talking about films and what they mean to us. That's right. Sometimes, you know, you put all these multiple images into one second and that makes up one second of film. But that's right. It's more films are more than that. The films. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, Adam, but films are a bunch of images strung together mm -hmm. in rapid succession mm -hmm. that tell a story. You're and right. that story trans just like. Uh, 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 transcends the medium of a bunch of different pictures. Like you could, you could take a bunch of pictures randomly, you know, uh, have them strewn around your apartment, and that's not a film, no. is it? I'm so glad someone's finally saying this, and yes. and I'm so glad that you me. agree with me. It is you, but yes. I'm backing you up. So I'm it's also one. me. That well, it's kind of my these idea. These stories, but yeah, go ahead. I'll but, give you. But part I had of it. thought it before you said it. These stories. Okay. 
means something to people. The communal experience of going to the cinema, watching a film. These are things, it's a valuable experience. This is what I'm saying. And not you. These are things that will I'm, never, I mean, I kind of said it. I said, you, you basically just rephrased but everything I said in a more pretentious way. Poignant. I, I love it. I don't think and, so necessarily. I think it's actually a little more reductive than what I was uh, saying. But I don't think so. I think what I'm saying is more important. Thank you. You're right. I'm going to give you this one. All right. Thank you. Um, but anyway, we are talking about films and we're talking about films, uh, filmmaking, filmmaking as well. Uh, we definitely cover that. And, uh, we're talking about one film in particular on this, uh, episode and it's, uh, 1986 is the year that it was, I consider films to be born. Oh yeah. It's a film's birthday. Human being there. I mean, there, they are a lot like human beings in, yeah. in a sense of they have a life of their own. And sometimes uh, you put it out there in the world and it, it grows up and it isn't exactly what you thought it or hoped or dreamed it was going to be. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes your film uh, only lasts three days, you know, and then it's gone forever, much like <laughs> human beings. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Which isn't probably what we want to talk oh about goodness, on, on this show. <laughs> I don't know that that's a subject that we need to get into, but we are talking about uh, a film whose birthday was uh, October 10th, 1986. True Stories, a film directed by David Byrne. I won't say a film by David Byrne because uh, uh, a film is a collaborative medium, certainly. Absolutely. And one of those collaborators, uh, uh, and I think he'd appreciate being called a collaborator, yeah. Um, that, that's not something you probably want to call someone as well. Is You're a collaborator. But he did collaborate on this film. Uh, he is the co-writer of the film, and he is a, a wonderful actor in other films. So he definitely, uh, I mean, he's the, ripe to be a guest on this podcast. You know him as, uh, uh, I mean, maybe most famously to me as Ned Ryerson in Groundhog Day. Um, but he has a wonderful filmography. Uh, look, do yourself a favor. Go to imdb.com and just look this guy's name up and spend the day there. You know, just oh, it's like crazy. Don't watch any of the things that it lists. Just like click on different films and go, oh, he was in that. He was just spend 24 hours straight there. Yeah, just stay on that IMDb page. That's what you're. That's what you're suggesting. <laughs> that's what. Well, click around on the links and like go. Oh, wow, he was in this. He was in. Don't look under the but bed. Don't watch in 1999. Don't watch any of the movies. No, heavens no. Um, but he is a first time guest. First time we've ever had a guest on this show. Uh, please welcome to the show, Stephen Tobolowski. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? Uh, one of the things when you go to my IMDb, I've had a little problem with my IMDb and that some of the movies there are actually things I've never been in. Oh, no. And I've written to IMDb and said, well, maybe could you take these off of my IMDb because I have no idea what this movie is or what I did in this right. movie. And they said, no, because we don't know you're really Stephen Tobolowsky. You uh -huh. know, you have to prove to us that you are. And and so I've been unable it, in, until recently, I think, to get some of these credits taken off. But you could still spend some time there clicking spend, on. Spend the day, of, of course, pack yourself a picnic lunch 
and, uh, you know, do it outside to be safe during these COVID times, you know, uh, uh, and just uh, spend the day on the computer, just flipping around IMDb. So can I ask, can I ask you, Stephen, if it's correct that you're in Freddy Got Fingered? I was in Freddy Got Fingered, but Tom cut me out of every frame of it. Oh, my uh, goodness. I, I went they to, didn't even put like one little frame of you in, in those 29. I'm not sure. Per second. I, you know, I didn't watch it. Uh, mm. But but, you know, <laughs> I, I wanted to do the movie because my son, uh, Robert, loved Tom more yep. than anything. Tom had that show on TV and and my son was a nihilist, much like Tom. And, and so I was very eager to shoot. And Tom and I had a great time shooting in, in Canada. One of the main reasons I wanted to do Freddie Got Fingered is that Julie Haggerty was in that film. The and, great Julie Haggerty oh gosh, from Airplane so and uh, the recent uh, Marriage Story. Yeah, and I wanted to meet her and spend time with her. And so, unfortunately, every time I went up to Canada to shoot Freddie Got Fingered, Julie was going back to Los Angeles to work on something else. So I never mm. got to meet her on the 10 weeks. 10 weeks. 10 weeks? You I never did. got to meet Julie Haggerty? And I and not only that, but 10 weeks of footage of Stephen and Tom Green that will never be oh. seen by the world. One of which is Tom Green and I dancing in a vat of Bavarian cream. Uh, this is a scene that- We Tom- got to get the Criterion collection of Freddie Got Fingered out there. So we How can- in the world could you shoot for 10 weeks and- all of it gets cut. That seems insane. Well, you know, as an actor, you know, the first option you go to is, <laughs> I must have really sucked. Yeah. But, no, but then, no, 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 no. But, but then you not. think, then you think structurally, what what they did is they basically cut out Act One of the movie uh, and they begin the movie kind of with Act Two and Three. Yeah. So maybe they felt like they had too much a preamble. Got it. That happened to me on the Between Two Ferns movie. I had to cut an entire subplot out of the movie with actors that we had uh, on the movie for weeks. And I had, you know, I, I wrote to them all because, because of what you say, Stephen is like, you know, I want them to know that they were really, really good in the film. It just like for, for whatever reason, that subplot wasn't testing well. And I, I just don't think there's any, and Adam just left weirdly enough. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I'm back. <laughs> He's so bored by me talking about the one film I've directed. Sorry. This is, I no, love No, I know this story though, but keep going. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard. You have to, you have to like tell everyone, oh no, you, you were really, really good. It's just like, for some reason that subplot, the audience is not interested in and, and it's easily excisable. So it just gets cut. Yeah. You never yeah. know what's going to work. Right. Well, you never know. And, and, you know, sometimes you get the bear and sometimes the bear gets you, which mm-hmm. is a very important uh, maxim to know in this business that sometimes the opposite happens and you come into a situation that you're supposed to like in terms of like Californication. Uh, mm-hmm. So I came on, I was supposed to do. Wait, is this an episode of Are You Talking to RHCP Remy? <laughs> Wait, no, it's not. It's not. No, okay, yeah. continue. continue. Wait, I was, you, you know, you go on, you're supposed to do three shows and you end up on the show for four years. Oh, right? wow. So, That's like so, the Urkel effect. The the Urkel effect. So it, it goes. <laughs> or the Fonzie, as, as the, uh, the, uh, the people of an older generation call Sometimes it. it works out in your favor and sometimes you just get cut out of the film. But the happy epilogue. To, to the Freddy Got Fingered. I always have to try to end with a happy epilogue yes. if you're going to continue in That's this life. That's great storytelling. Yeah. Yes. And that is that after Freddy Got Fingered, the very next year, 
Julie and I got cast together on Broadway in Mornings at Seven. She played my girlfriend, and Julie Haggerty was my girlfriend on Broadway in a highly successful Broadway show, Mornings at Seven, um, nominated for more Tony Awards than any other straight play in history. And oh. and I got to be with Julie for uh, a year. Oh, so wow. that's it'd be, fabulous. It would be interesting if you never met her during that. Like, like she yeah, did her scenes on Broadway, <laughs> and then she took a plane, right? Like, immediately off and getting on stage, and suddenly you walk on yeah, stage. Yeah, that would have hurt. That would have hurt. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, that, she is a, a delight, and uh, she would be a, a wonderful guest on this show, talking oh, about yeah. uh, Lost in America and yeah. uh, her filmography. But, of course... Uh, we have you, Stephen, and yeah. uh, we we talked before you came on the show uh, the, uh, about your your last name, how it can be pronounced a bunch of different ways. So, uh, the fact that you said it a different way than me is okay. I was just showing you up. Yes, thank you. <laughs> okay, yeah. you didn't do that just to make me look like an asshole. <laughs> no, I don't know. no, no, no. But you know, I'm used to saying it my way, and you could say it your way. But just so the audience knows, any way you say it is fine. Is correct. Is yes. correct. Um, you have such an amazing filmography. Uh, I mentioned Groundhog Day. Before we get into the film that we're, we're here to talk about, let's talk Groundhog Day just for a second. Could we? I mean, is Absolutely. there... Is it the I, one you're asked you... about the most, probably, would you say? Well, probably. Groundhog Day is, is you know, such a fantastic... You, you know, it's difficult in movies. Uh, I think it was Harold Ramis said the formula of a film is... You have to be good in a good movie that people see. If any right. part of that equation is wrong, off, it's a disaster. If you're bad in a good movie that everybody sees, it's the end of your career. And if you're good <laughs> in a terrible movie that nobody sees, it's just a trivia question. So, right. y you know, and... Everybody loves Ned. It's why, a, why did why was Harold Ramis saying this? By the way, was this during a break, or was he does does, does he call you at home and just leave that on your answering machine? We, well, during our during our scenes, you know, I, I would sit next to him, and and he would, ex and I was a little panicked as we were shooting because I was feeling my performance was a little large. Uh, that that it could like play in the Roman Colosseum, and so I would I would sit next to I'd sit next. And I said, Her, "Is this is this okay? You know, you want me to tone it down?" And and he would explain to me all sorts of things about filmdom. And since you are lovers of was it film or films? We're lovers of films. The other guys are lovers of okay. film. Okay, you're lovers of films. Here's something very fascinating. He told me about Groundhog Day uh, that I've kept with me for my entire life, and he said. Stephen, comedy lives in the two shot. He, he said, you always have to have the world and you have to have in that shot the force that's wacky in the world. So you get the reaction to it. That's why Bill and I are always shot in two shots. And as huh. the movie continues, only near the end of the film do we start to get Bill and a lot of singles with Andy McDowell. Hmm. Uh, and I see this all the time with people shooting comedies now, that a lot of times directors don't realize that it's highly effective if you shoot comedy scenes in a two-shot. because that, And what's really particular, particularly special about Groundhog Day is that Bill, in the film, is able to do both. So in the earlier scenes in Groundhog Day, Bill is the aberrant force of the world, and Andy McDowell is the world. 
And we get that in a two shot. So we get Bill's arrogance and everything. He's the aberrant force. And in the movie, Bill is the pro, the antagonist. He's the jerk. He's, he's, he's the guy we don't want to be until he meets me on the street. And then when he meets me on the street, I am such a jerk. I am the aberrant force. And in that scene, Bill Murray changes from being, you know, you know the ab- he becomes the protagonist uh, because of that. And he becomes the world. And oh, now so we- it flops because of your introduction into right. the world. And then we see the world through Bill's eyes. And oh. now we have empathy for him whenever he steps in that puddle. So that was an interesting. And was, was that something that Harold Ramis was planning, or is it yes. an interest? It was. Wow, smart guy. It, smart guy. And he and and I look at comedies now. When I shoot comedies now, no, when I am shot in comedies now, mm-hmm. I'm always thinking like, are they? Is the director going to be able to get a good two shot of this particular scene? Interesting. Well, you know, it's in in comedy, especially the one that I made. Uh, not to bring it up again, Adam. Are you going to leave again? Or no? Of but, course not. Um, in modern comedies, there's so much improv, and we were making a. Oh God, he's gone again. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> um, we were making an improv film that was shot like a documentary, where we didn't know what was going to happen in any scene. Uh, there's. It's kind of hard to shoot that. In just two shots, you, you you can do it in in basically two different ways. You can do it in like group scenes, and then the the person that they're reacting off of is in a single, or you can do it when two people are talking. You have to do it in two singles because otherwise you can't edit it together, like improv, different takes and stuff like that. So it's it's very interesting uh, to hear that comedy is done in two shots. I wonder if there was a script, if, if to shoot it more in two shots would be more interesting. And also, also Groundhog Day is a particularly strange film because of the format in that the day is repeated. So a lot of people have asked me, you know, how much improv did you and Bill do? And on that film, we did almost no improv because the day has to be the same. Even right. the weather, there's only one scene in Groundhog Day with Bill and I that really is completely improv, and that's when Bill meets me on the street and he hugs me, and it's, hey, Ned, it's been so right. long since, <laughs> what are you doing later? That was not in the script. Bill completely made that up. We, wow. we shot that in one take, and Harold Ramis had it in two shots, both a wide two and a close two. And when we finished, I had no, you know, I just tried to run off camera because I didn't know what to do after he right. hugged me. So I just vanished. And uh, Harold said like, well, we got that, you know? So that was like one shot, <laughs> wow. one print. He got a two take. Amazing. Did you, yeah. did you do all of those scenes one after the other? And how did they, they, the, and look, this is the show I love films. So we're getting into the weeds on this, but how did they make sure that the lighting now that you mention it, it's the exact same day each time. But as That's you are shooting too. it, the sun would all would move. How are they tracking that? Now, see, we have not really met except under that tent at Sarah Silverman's uh, sh- show. Right. So you didn't know you were tossing me a softball. Oh, so, okay. So this is what's really fascinating about Groundhog Day because the day is repeated. The day has to also be the same meteorologically. So Harold Ramis, when we started shooting, didn't know what the day of the film would be. Uh, sunny, 
rainy, snowy, because we're shooting outside of Chicago. So Bill and I were always on a will notify, which for the people who don't love films. This this is all about call sheets. It's uh, all about call sheets. Yeah, we love to talk about. We we had no set. We were always on call. So if it began to snow, we would get the call in our rooms, Stephen, Bill, go down to Main Street. Let's shoot the scene in the snow. Let's shoot the scene in the rain. Let's... So we shot our street scenes, and there were originally about nine of them, and I think it got cut down to about four. We originally, <coughs> yeah, uh, do you have that mute button for uh, coughs? We, we do. It. Unfortunately, yeah. I wasn't I wasn't pushing it. But we yeah, during our coughs. Yeah. We love coughs. Like, okay. uh, next time you cough, hold up your uh, hold up your hand and kind of wave it like this and I'll I'll press it. I mean it's a, okay. a giant it's a, red button right here. Ready here. I, uh, Let's practice here. Here it goes. Okay, here we go. Ready? Ready? Waving the hand. Here comes the cough. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I missed it again. I need, maybe I need more of go. a... Uh, we need I like need, a 10-minute, uh, if you have 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Ten, yeah. That wasn't really a frog in my throat. That was like a salamander. It was long. Uh, <laughs> the thing about the day of Groundhog Day, somewhere there is a vault with Bill and I doing those street scenes in every weather condition imaginable. Really? And there and in just the, in case. Just in case. And in the end, Harold decided that the day that would be repeated, as you mentioned, the sun is always in the same place. The day would be the gloomy day. And near the end of the film, when snow begins to fall, is when time begins again. So, oh. so, but he had all that footage to play with to decide how he wanted to, to do decide. that. Decide, wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, normally you would think that that kind of stuff would be planned out ahead of time. Of like, okay, we're repeating the same day all the time, so it's got to look like this, and every single day has to look like this. But he he did options. Incredible. Well, of course, but you're outside of Chicago, and you cannot. You know, the sunshine is not guaranteed, especially when you're shooting in right. January and February. So when you look at a film like Palm Springs, which obviously was influenced by Groundhog Day, they're doing it in the sun out in California where you can replicate the same day over and over. Like, do you look at them and go, what a bunch of pussies? <laughs> I'm, th- I'm thinking they're taking the easy way out. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to tell them that. So were you yeah. guys all in I'm Groundhog Day, were you guys all staying close enough that you could just run down and out to the street to, to shoot? Or were, did you have to, like, get in a van and drive 20 minutes and... I was I was staying in a room on the square. Wow. That's so amazing. they could just and Bill is in every scene of the film and so he's always with the crew. Yeah, he's always there. And 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 so it's like go down to the street scene they're basically just calling me to get out of bed and come down there and get ready to go. So did you ever accidentally shoot in your pajamas cuz you were just getting out of bed and forgot to get dressed or anything? It was too cold. No, it was it was like okay. an army experiment. Thank it, God for that cold. Oh right? yeah, thank God, or I would have done it. <laughs> <laughs> there, you know, a lot has been reported on Groundhog Day. I think there were like a bunch of newspaper articles about kind of the tension between Bill Murray and Harold Ramis. Was 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 that evident when you were working on it, or was that sort of kept away from you? Or it was kept away from me. It was not evident. I didn't get a glimpse of it from Harold Ramis. I certainly got not a glimpse of it from Bill's performance. I thought he was amazing. One of and, and people think like, well, was Bill really funny? Was he really grumpy? What was he like? And I, I'm saying like, he's like one of the best actors I've ever worked with in my life. Every wow. take, every take 
was in the moment. Every take was just as kind of spontaneous, but within the realm of the movie as possible. It was it was amazing to be a part of it. Do you think that his improv background uh, there at the Second City in Chicago, does that have a lot to do with it? Yeah. Yeah, that had a lot to do with it, but it also takes a certain amount of discipline. You know, the improv has to be tamed a little bit with the discipline of the tone of the film and the story you're telling. And you have to be able to do that in the moment. So that's a great skill set to have. Well, amazing. I, Groundhog Day, one of my favorite films for a while, I... I I uh, was saying it was my favorite film, uh, and maybe it is. I don't know. Uh, I saw it up in uh, Sacramento uh, uh, and uh, would imitate you all the time, Phil. Phil, you know, which is just such a, a wonderful thing to be repeated. Uh, and so thank you for indulging us here at I Love Films because uh, Groundhog Day is a film that we love here on I Love Films. Well, I'm glad you love it. it it's it's a, uh, There's one other, uh, just... Just as an happy epilogue. Oh, good. Uh, there is one other improv scene in there for sure. And that is at the end of the movie, when Bill came down, they rehearsed he and Andy in the bedroom going out into the world. And it was snowing. And so they rehearsed the scene. But, you know, there are a lot of people on a crew and there's footprints and so you have to get rid of all the footprints and all the stuff before you shoot again. So when they came to do the take, Bill came down with Andy and the snow was such that it blocked the gate and he could not open the gate to get her out of there. So rather than wait for calling a cut, wait, having them shovel snow or whatever, Bill lifts Andy up in his arms, lifts her over the threshold, over the gate, and it became this kind of beautiful, like, <laughs> through wow. the threshold into the world, that was Bill in the spur of the moment. And it's one of the beautiful scenes in the movie. That's wow. amazing. I mean, as someone who, I, I don't know that I'd call myself an actor, but um, as someone who has uh, definitely <laughs> been in front of the camera, um, usually I'm the kind of guy who would be like, oh, should we cut? You know? and. <laughs> It's always, oh, I can't get through. Can we cut? It's always the temptation to do that if something isn't the way that you planned it in your head. But uh, those happy accidents, that's what David Lynch would do on uh, uh, you know, all of his films. He views those accidents as like integral to the filmmaking process. Sometimes it can really work out. And, and in terms of the I Love films, you know, the, the, the idea of what the hit is, the difference between a play and a film the hit of a play is that you are creating reality on stage. You are creating a world on stage. The audience knows they're seeing a play. They paid for the ticket. Yeah, usually I can see like a person's head in front, in of, front me of you too. In front you know of you. You know what I mean? And, and there aren't people's heads in front of me during life. And, and there are lights up. There's lights down. There's where They're wearing costumes. They get laughs. They hold for laughs yet at the same yeah. time. And I'm eating a sandwich usually, like a really stinky sandwich, you know? And, yeah, why uh, do you always bring a stinky sandwich to the theater? That is the theater to me. I don't, I don't have a lot of time. And so when I go see a play... I like to just sit there, have a three-course meal, a stinky, stinky egg sandwich, and just relax. Egg sandwich. So the hit of theater is reality. But the hit of a movie is different because 
there are edits, there is music, there's all sorts of stuff. And it doesn't matter what you watch on film, no matter how much you love film, there is a distance between you and what you're seeing on that film. You could watch horrific murders, you could watch love scenes, whatever, and you're only kind of partly involved. So the thing the really great directors try to do is create surprise, create moments of surprise where the actors are surprised in the scene, where they're thrown by something and they're able to capture that moment on film and that moment has terrific effect on an audience because it doesn't look so canned. So the hit of film is surprise, whereas the hit of theater is the simulation of reality. Speaking of horrible murders, you ever see that movie Ma? No. Too many horrible murders. Yeah. Can't do it. She's very scary in it, though. I imagine she's scary. I, I can't do it. I can't do yeah. it. Ma, you killed me. But but I I'm becoming such a softy, you know. Oh I, yeah, yeah. I what, what types of films do you like to watch these days? I watch Michael Clayton. I've seen Michael Clayton. I just about saw it recently. That's Twelve times. It's very relaxing. Uh, like he he's almost his car almost gets blown up, but instead he's just gazing at a horse. So there's yeah. not not a lot of drama in it. Of like, you know, it's not pulse pounding. It's just a very kind of pleasant look into a guy's life who is in a terribly stressful situation, but nothing really bad ever happens to him. Do you, do you know, as someone who's gone into the weeds on Michael Clayton, the scene where he sees the horses right on the hill, and and that is what makes him get out of it. You know, okay. Spoiler alert. Well, look, this is I Love Films. People have watched every film before okay. they listen to this podcast. So So he goes up to see the horses, right? But we also have in that book, of course, uh, Tom Wilkinson, uh, uh, the great film actor, the atter- great, great actor, actor, and his horrible murder in that film. And one of the reasons he's he has this book that a child has recommended to him, uh, summons to or whatever called to conquest, summons to conquest, or whatever that book with the red the cover book. is. Yeah. So George Clooney, in the in the scene where he comes into Tom Wilkinson's apartment to see if there are any clues as to why or how he was killed, sees the red book that we hear about, and he opens the book to the page and is thumbing through various pages, and we see Tom Wilkinson's notes in the corner. Then George Clooney turns a page, and there, at the top of the page, are the horses, is the horse and the trees. It's the same shot that we see earlier and later of the horse and the trees and uh, what. Okay. I've always sort of wondered why he gets out of the car to go pet a horse. And and that. I mean, I would. If I saw a horse, I'd go pet it. And uh, we were talking about it earlier on on the show about petting horses and trying to hotwire a Mustang. That. Yeah. So they're saying that, that he stops the car to go look at the horses because it's an image he had seen previously yes. in the book? In the book. But but because of the way the movie is shot, in, in that you see the uh, car exploding and the horses before he sees the book and after afterwards. So it's kind of... Oh. And and the image of the horses in the book, it's an ink drawing at the top of the of of a chapter page with the trees, exactly as we see it in the shot with one horse as opposed to three horses. One horse instead of three, it's exactly it was added in post. That picture was added in post by artists on the top of the page to ah. emulate 
the the frame of film before huh. that they actually had shot previously. So it is an Easter egg in Michael Clayton. Interesting. Do you think they should have lingered on that on that shot of the book more to so that you could put it together a little easier? Because that is one of the questions I always had coming yeah. out of that film is, is like, is it a little convenient he goes out? To pet a horse, something I would do. Again, something that I were I to see a horse <laughs> as I was driving by, hot, hot wire a Mustang. <laughs> I definitely would. But but do you think they should have lingered on it, or does it make it more artistic and beautiful? The fact that they don't, and it's something you can put together later in your mind. I yeah, I have gone over that myself because I've seen the movie several times before I found out about that little tr- secret of huh. the film. And and I wondered, should they have lingered longer on that? Well, then that's maybe, exactly what I just asked. But you're just kind of oh, rephrasing. I'm the just same rephrasing thing that it. Of, in yeah, a, I don't know. In it, a, it seems like everyone's taking credit for all of my ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we we could talk about Michael Clayton and yeah. other films for for hours, but uh, we are here to talk about one film in uh, particular. Yes. And that is the film True Stories, which was born. Its birthday was October 10th, 1986. Uh, it's having its 30. It just had its 34th birthday, I believe. So uh, I am so old. Hey, I am. I am. We all so are these old. days, if oh, you know God. what I mean. I, which do. I don't even know if I know what I mean. Oh. But um, you, we want to talk to you because you uh, are the co-writer of the film. And, you know, you, you have such an incredible uh, career. You're an actor. You're a writer. You're a director. You Again, if you take a look at your IMDb page, it's just, you know, you'll be scrolling forever if you go from uh, uh, top to bottom. And, you know, all of these things combined, when did you first hear of Talking Heads? Oh. I had heard of Talking Heads, I guess, Life in Wartime, uh, Psycho Killer. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a fan of Talking Heads. I wasn't not a fan. I was just listening to a lot of Bonnie Raitt at the time and a lot of Louis Armstrong. You know, you only have so much time in your life. Sure. And and then there, of course, was Once in a Lifetime, which I think had just come out a little bit before I met David. So I knew who the talking heads were. And I knew sort of what some of their hit songs were, but I didn't know a lot about them. And I guess my girlfriend at the time, Beth Henley, Beth was always an actress who never could get an audition, who never did anything. And so we were in graduate school together and she said, well, maybe I should be a writer instead of an actor. And I go, sure, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or think sure, of honey. dentistry, think of something that people will pay you to do, you, you know, something, uh, you know, sure, be a writer. Good too. choice that she she ended up making. Yes. So we were in graduate. Beth and I fell in love in college. We were in graduate school together and she At saw SMU is where you went. Is that correct? right? And where then Janie we, Haddad Tompkins graduated from. Oh, my God. I know. Yeah. It's shocking. It's shocking. Yeah, that is true. Uh, we, we went to graduate school at the University of Illinois, and Beth saw a play written by uh, Claudia Riley, who was the only student in the playwriting program at the University of Illinois. And on the walk home from seeing Claudia's play, Beth is like, we're walking across campus, and she says, you know, that's so brave what she did to write a play. And I go, well, 
I don't know if you call it brave. It's not like Davy Crockett at the Alamo. I mean, she's in graduate school in playwriting. You know, she paid <laughs> the people. That's what she's supposed to do. Well, I love she... the way that you're talking to your ex-girlfriend, by the way. Like, well, she brings that's... up anything. You're like, honey, <laughs> yeah. just she's, up, she's in school. You know, it, it isn't like a real act of courage. And she said, well, right. I want to be a writer. So, Beth, the first thing she wrote was a screenplay Uh she wrote a screenplay, a couple one acts, but the first full length play she wrote won the Pulitzer Prize for drama. Incredible. I mean, cool. she's an incredible playwright. Crimes Just... of the Heart. Crimes of the Heart. You know, I also... directed uh, I directed and acted in Crimes of the Heart in, uh, in high school. In I high thought school you were going to say the movie. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> like, God. You're lying right now. Um, but yeah, it's uh, an incredible uh, piece. And of course, you know, uh, we don't talk about uh, stage productions necessarily on this show because we talk about films, but we can do a little sidebar here for a moment. Um, just in, it, it were, And you were with her while she was writing that. Is that, is that oh, correct? Y- yeah. It's like when, when we were, she was walking around our little house together in LA with tons of little notebooks with pieces of paper all over the place, writing, typing. So I start reading her play, which at the time was called something like either Three Mississippi Sisters or Old Granddaddy's Dying. So <laughs> so that was the name of the So I'm reading this play and I'm and I'm going like, damn, who am I living with? Yeah. <laughs> this is this is this is like Pulitzer worthy. This is brilliant. And and it was Beth is typing and I'm getting to the end of the play and she's typing near the end of the play and she pulls out the last page of the what? play and gives it to me and I'm reading it there and I start crying in the living room. I'm oh going my like, God. this wow. is the most beautiful play. This is so brilliant and you cannot call it Granddaddy's Dying or Three Mississippi Sisters. This play <laughs> needs a title. This play, this play is going to be on Broadway, Beth. This is one of the best plays written in our lifetime. This is phenomenal. So anyway, we were going to do an equity waiver production of Crimes of the Heart in L.A. for free, you know, with all of our friends in this play. And then uh, the girl who was going to play Meg, uh, Sharon Ulrich, gave the play to her agent who never read it. and, And her agent gave it to his boyfriend who never really read it and brought it back to New York and handed it off to uh, Gilbert Parker, who happened to be an agent of Lillian Hellman, Tennessee Williams, Mark Medoff, some of the great writers in America. And he read the play on the stack of, of plays and go, oh my. And he called Beth up on the phone. And I pick up the phone. This is Gilbert Parker. I'm calling Beth Henley. And I said, yeah, yeah, Beth's here. And I go, Beth, the phone for you, Gilbert Parker? And he said, "Is I'd like to help you with this play. And she's looking at me like shrugging, like, yeah, I don't know who this, you know, I don't know what's going on. And she said, sure, sure. Not knowing he was probably one of the most powerful literary agents in the country. Oh, my So gosh. after that, Beth won the uh, Great American Play Festival in Louisville. She ended up winning the uh, Pulitzer Prize for Drama for Crimes of the Heart. And here, this is our entree into true stories. Mm -hmm. So uh, Jonathan Demme's uh, former wife and producer, Evelyn Purcell, was looking for projects she could work with and wanted to work 
particularly with female writers. And so she read Beth's screenplay, uh, The Moon Watcher, and she read Crimes of the Heart, and she wanted to do Crimes of the Heart. And she introduced Beth to Jonathan Demme, uh, and Jonathan was thinking, well, maybe we could do a movie of, of Crimes of the Heart. So right. both Jonathan Demme and Evelyn Purcell were glomming onto Beth thinking like, here is a real writing talent and we may be able to uh, work with her and, and use some of her, her work. Uh, so Beth and I are doing Pilates way before Pilates was cool. <laughs> you know how we, we know that you've already said true stories is like 112 years old. What was it? You said like 30, 36 or something. Oh, yes. God. So anyway, this was before then we were doing Pilates. So we were doing Pilates when no one knew about it. And Beth and I are walking from Pilates class and a car st- stops on the street in a very threatening way. And it was Jonathan Demme. <laughs> and he yells out, went, hey, kids, I'm going over to the academy to see the, uh, new, my latest film that I did. It's a rough cut of uh, Stop Making Sense. Have you guys heard of the talking heads? And I go, well, yeah, sure. We, you know, life during wartime. Yeah, sure. sure. We, yeah, we yeah, know who they are. Psycho killer. Who says, well, come on, jump in the car. You know, follow me over there. We're, we're going to, y- y- you know. Jump in the fo- car and follow you over well, there? Well, we had our little Volkswagen rabbit. We jumped okay. in our car and we were going to oh, follow him okay. over to the academy. So did you know him? Had you already done swing shift at this point? No, so no, you no, knew no, 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 Jonathan? Uh, no, no, but, no. He he just was uh, uh, interested in in do. He he didn't end up directing Crimes of the Heart. But no, no. It, but he was Bruce interested Ferris in did. working with Beth. Right. And he was interested in in developing that relationship. And so was right. his wife Evelyn. So he just sees you on the street. I don't know if I, you know, I produce uh, uh, things like Auntie Donna now on Netflix. Please watch it. But if I were to see those guys on the street. I don't know that I'd be pulling over going like, hey, you know, come follow me to whatever I'm doing. What, what an amazing thing for Jonathan Demi to do just to see you on the street and say like, hey, come on by. Well, that's the kind of guy Jonathan it, it was. That's the kind of guy he was. He was very open, very friendly guy. Used to invite me over to his office to play Fireball because I loved that game and he loved that game. What is Fireball? Is that a video game or what is it? It is. Uh, it was a great pinball game. Oh. At the time, you know, bing, ding, bing, ding, ding, ding. I know ding. what pinball okay. sounds like. Yeah. Oh, the one, the <laughs> vertical one that goes down? It, it, it has a spinning disc in the middle. And so you, you, as the s- silver ball is going up, it gets caught on that ball and gets huh. thrown off in all sorts of crazy directions. Do but you, he loved fireball and I love fireball. Do you think that, that spinning disc in the middle is what gave Jonathan Demi the idea to put his movies on DVD? Boy, you know, I never made that connection before. I that, mean, crazier things have happened. Now, we knew who Jonathan was because of Melvin and Howard, sure. right? He had, so we knew Jonathan from Melvin and Howard. Film uh, lovers, of course, know this is a film and not just guys he knows. Right. Yes, yes. And, and, and it's a good movie. It's a super good movie. Yeah. And so we follow Jonathan over to the Academy. And for the people who are lovers of film but don't know the inside of the Academy, that Not everyone is, is invited into the academy. No, that is a big, big theater. It's like 1,900 seats. So that's where Jonathan is going to screen his rough cut. So Beth and I walk in, and the theater, the 1,900 seats are empty, <laughs> except for David Byrne, Tina, Chris, Jer- you know, the talking heads, 
Jonathan and Evelyn and me and Beth. So that's, <laughs> okay, so this wasn't something that he was inviting a bunch of people to. He just no. was like, you were tagging along and it was just you guys. It's just us guys. So Beth and I sit wow. in the middle of the theater. Behind us is sitting David Byrne. And so I'm going, oh, oh, I recognize this guy from MTV. Oh, God. And then uh, Jonathan and Evelyn were sitting there. And I think Tina and uh, Chris Franz, I think they were up front of the theater. And so what was unique about this experience for Beth and for myself was not only were we watching a great concert film, Not only were we watching a great concert film with the director and the artists who were in the concert film, but this was the first time we really heard the Talking Heads music. And we're Hmm. hearing it in the massive stereo of that theater on the big screen. And it was an overwhelming experience. Wow. Oh, take me to the river, slippery people, all these these amazing Talking Heads songs and the brilliant Amazing grace. It, it speaking was, of songs, I'm just speaking of, of great songs. I just yes, wanted to segue yes, for a second. Yes. That's a great song. I just wanted to throw that in. Yeah, it's, just to it's make a, sure you were paying attention as well, because they don't play that in Stop Making Sense. They don't play that in Stop Making Sense, but it it is a great song. It and is a great song. You have to agree. And it's good, and it's good country, and it's good any way you cut it. Like John any, Lennon said, yeah. any, any way you do a great song, it's great. Exactly. Any style. And so you, so, so when Demi brings you in, yeah. he introduces you to the band and says, these are my pals, or are they looking no. at you like, no, who, we, who are these guys? What happens? I, I think he generally introduced us, but it wasn't like a major deal that we just sat down. And, and as I mentioned, the bigger deal was David was sitting in the row behind me, kind of where he could kind of see me. Ah. So, so when the movie was finished, the movie is done, and Beth and I are completely overwhelmed. Jonathan and David saying, well, we're thinking about going out to eat. Do you guys want to come eat with us? So, of course, we're going to say yes to that. So we go up somewhere schnazzy above the Sunset Strip, some Chinese place, I think. And we're all sitting together, and I end up at the end of the table where David Byrne is. And so Beth is next to me. She's more talking to Jonathan, and I'm face-to-face with David across the table. And so David said, like, all right, I want you to know everything you did not like about the movie. I go, well, David, I I love it. No, no, no. Everyone always says I love the movie. Everyone always says they love what we—I don't want to hear what you loved. I I want you to tell me everything that didn't work for you. And that is— the essence of David. Interesting. You know, you know so he, he, yeah, he's not he satisfied. So he really does want to know the negative. He wants to or, know the negative because he is always working, always oh. working. He doesn't want the pat on the back. He doesn't want, oh, well, this is just brilliant. He doesn't want yes men. He so, wants, so David and so I- So what did you tell, what did you tell him about what you didn't like? Did you? I, well, I- I, were you, what try, I were you was, like sort of trying to come up with things just to I was what I the only thing I could do was I talked to him in very specific frame by frame song by song of what how I experienced the movie and it all turned out to be sort of positive and right. he said well did you feel this part was too I said not for me and you have to understand I don't know your music 
So this was my introduction to you. I right, wasn't a okay. fan coming in So that's in a good here. perspective, yeah. So that he as, probably wasn't yes, getting from a lot of people. Yes, as someone who's not a fan. This is what I felt. And who is still not a fan. <laughs> you threw that in. By <laughs> no, the way, I, I still don't like your music. <laughs> boy, I'm, well, actually, I'm a huge fan now. I'm right. a huge fan of David's and all of his new well, stuff Well, you should and come on our, our sister show, uh, You Talking Talking Heads to My Talking Head. But oh. of course, that is not this show. This is I Love Films. Yeah. Um, so Did you go see American Utopia uh, on Broadway? Did you get a chance? I, no, I've seen it on cable, though, a few sure, times. Sure, sure. Yeah. It's when so I'm not watching uh, Michael Clayton. <laughs> That's right. You do. Those just, are the only just two movies. Ping ponging back and forth <laughs> between those two things. So, so um, you have this dinner with David, and then how does the relationship continue? He invites you over to his house. Is that no, what happens? No, it it was more more bizarre even than that. So he said, "So, uh, where do you live?" And <laughs> and I said, "Well, we live up in the Hollywood Hills." He says, "Oh, so do I. Um, do you have a swimming pool?" <laughs> and and I go, well, yeah, David, you know, we have a, you know, we have a swimming pool. He said, well, I'm shooting a video for MTV uh, for um, Road to no- a song we did, Road to Nowhere. Uh, can we use your swimming pool for that? And I go, <laughs> well, sure, David. And this is, I am, I am so green, you know, I don't know about the litigious age of people getting hurt or drowning in swimming sure, pools yeah. and you it's, getting... If someone were to drown, you uh, an immediate, like, you're liable for getting, it. Getting and this sued. was someone you had just met. Just met. So I said, sure, come on over. So David and uh, the people who were working on that came over. They set up camp in our backyard. And when you see the video of Road to Nowhere, the scenes shot underwater in that song were shot in our backyard, Whoa. in our swimming pool. Do you do you think that do you think that David Byrne was talking to Jonathan Demi one day and was like, "Okay, hey, if you have any friends with swimming pools and you <laughs> see them, them on the street, would you invite them to my movie?" <laughs> I I am not. Is he playing 3D chess here? I it it could have been. I'm so I'm. And why I'm, didn't he just use his own swimming pool? He he lives in the Hollywood Hills. David David. Well, I'll get to David's place in a second. Uh, but yeah, it's poolless, we can assume. It's poolless, that was for sure. Mm, uh, that's one thing you can say about his was, house, is it it's was, poolless. It was poolless. And and so they're shooting, and so I said, well, do you guys want to have dinner? You know, I could barbecue. So I barbecued some salmon or something, was barbecuing salmon, opened mm, up a bottle of wine. Yeah, oh, it was, do you mind doing that for us right now? Oh, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm gearing up for Thanksgiving, guys. I'm oh, sorry. okay. Yeah, it's, sorry. it's, it's a little uh, too much prep time. For a that. little too much prep time. And, and so I'm cooking and David stays for dinner. And while we're at dinner, Beth asks him, so what are you working on now? You know, what, what are you doing now? He says, well, you know, I'm... I'm working on this idea I'm calling true stories. You know, whenever the talking heads, whenever we go on the road, we always stop at 7-Elevens or whatever to get coffee. And they always have these amazing magazines in the rack there about these stories that you know are absolutely impossible, but they have to be true. You, you know, the gardener who, you know, an alien, he sees an alien having sex with his weed whacker. Now, I'm not making that up because it uses the word weed whacker and alien and sex in the same thing. There was actually a story in World Weekly News at a 7-Eleven alien, you know, gardeners. How, do, how does the physiology That's work totally with that? That's totally true, though. That's totally true. Well, it can happen. 
How do I mean? So aliens, sexual organs. I'm assuming the alien is female and the weed whacker is going inside. Is that? No, no. I I, I don't even know if you want to go there. I can't I even speculate on how that would be possible. Maybe maybe the alien just got to second base with the weed whacker. <laughs> okay, that's possibly <laughs> and, true. And and he just. And by like, the way, alien baseball. This is our sister show. I love baseball as well. <laughs> Alien baseball, there are 34 bases. So second base is really like nothing is going on. It's like nothing, especially with a weed whacker. Sure. Maybe he just turned it on and the it started spinning. He <laughs> thought like, ah, she's there. So <laughs> any, anyway, uh, David's saying, I just wanted to put together a movie with all these absolutely incredible stories where all these different characters have these stories that are unbelievable but are true stories and then beth says to david very um uh fortuitously well you ought to talk to my sweetie that was me uh you ought to talk to my sweetie about what happened to him in college because that that's like completely unbelievable and david said oh well what happened to you in college and so i told david the story of what happened to me in movement class, we had a movement retreat in my sophomore year where we decided to do exactly the same things we do in movement class, but two hours outside of the city of Dallas by a lake where we're closer to mosquitoes. So we're like breathing in and out around the fire and all this. If, if people haven't been to acting school, movement class is essentially, they call movement it's not dance. It's just like getting in touch with your body and learning how yeah, to move your body around so that. But it's just, you know, in a way, dance to, class. Although when I took it, it was, we never, like, dance class was separate. It was mainly just like, hey, here's how to move your body on stage to communicate ideas. Is that pretty much what it is, Stephen? That's You're, what it was. But this was more like breathing. Like, like. Right. Yeah. A lot of breathing exercises, a lot like. How to how to prepare your body to be an actor? This was this was like in the like late nineteen seventy. I'm thinking so breathing was considered an exercise back then, <laughs> right? Like that's how Ooh, lame. I, I shed a few lbs just by yeah. breathing. Yeah, it's like, and you had to breathe correctly. You couldn't breathe too shallow. Had to use your diaphragm. All this. So we're breathing. We're around the fire, and our movement teacher. Uh, says, okay, we're going to go around the fire, and I want you to say the first thing that comes into your mind, which was also big in 1970. And so Lord of the Rings, people were reading that book now. And and so they're going like, going around the circle, they're going Frodo, Frodo, Hobbit, Hobbit, Gandalf. Wait, people, people, this is the first thing that's coming to people's minds? Yes. Frodo, Frodo? Yeah, because, and then they're going weed, beer everybody's kind of laughing right <laughs> and then they get to me and i have this i feel this kind of sound is all i could describe it in my head i hear this sound in my head and i look across the fire and i say to our movement teacher i get that you're not who you say you are pause he you, looks, you said this to your movement teacher yes it across just, the it just fire popped in your head yes I hear the sound in my head popped in my, I said, I get that you're not who you say you are. And he says, well, what do you mean, Stephen? I said, well, you say your name is this, but that isn't, you're, you're living under an assumed name and your real initials are JK or JL. And then he- Was it JK Rowling? No. 
Oh, we, that was, I didn't. Oh. I didn't go to that good of a school. Oh, okay, you didn't no. go to Hogwarts. No, no, no. <laughs> I go to so then they keep going. Go. All right, let's continue on. And then the next person goes Gandalf. Uh, They're still you know, thinking about the Lord of the Rings. Frodo, Frodo, can't Hobbit. shake them from <laughs> can't shake the guys. Rings. We're here. We're here in nature. Stop thinking about this dumb book you just read. So, so we finish, and I decide I'm going to drive back to Dallas. You know, instead of spending the night, did 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 it come back around to you? And did something else pop in your head, or was that the only that was time it. during that was that it. was okay. it? So I'm walking to my car, and on my way to the car, my movement teacher stops me. He comes out of the shadows and said, "Stephen, scary. Why did you say that around the fire?" And I explained what I explained to everybody here. I I said I heard this noise in my head, and that's just what came to me. He said because it's true. And I said, what? He says, I do have an assumed name. And my real initials are JK. So I ask you again, how did you know this? And I go, I have no idea. So later I tell my girlfriend, Beth, who's a freshman at this time, about what happened. And she goes, we're going to make a fortune. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and so she started bringing people from the theater department to me and I would sit down, I would look at them, I would hold their hands, I'd hear a sound in my head and I would say things to them. So and, you, were you hearing these sounds before the fire or or was this the first time was the fire and suddenly the fire you was out the a way first to, time I could and say. And you figured out a way to tap into it somehow when you would see these other people? That's just that's just what that's just what happened. You, you know, I and, and and I was in college, and you know, I I just assumed it was all made up and not anything real, anyway. And I started telling people in my drama class what what they were seeing, what I was saying, and with a terrible high rate of accuracy. And a lot of these things weren't happy things, weren't good things. Hmm. Wow. You, you know, I would say. You know, there's a problem. You know, with you and your father at home, there was some sort of abuse, and you know. They would start crying and they'd run out of the room. It was not good. So anyway, I'm telling David Byrne this ridiculous. And Beth and I did. Did you? But before you tell David Byrne, did you make a lot of money? Are you rich now from this? Oh man. We, well, we, we. How many char- bozos did you make? We we, we charged <laughs> we charged like uh, I think something like twenty five cents to sit down and <laughs> have me rich. do this and for and as it got more popular a dollar so i think beth and i made somewhere in the realm of like uh, you know 20 bucks wow this. but yeah. this is 1970s money this that's like five million dollars yeah it's, it's five million dollars in post you know inflation sure. money and uh so i told this story to david byrne and he's like oh oh interesting so anyway <laughs> Uh, that's about that's about as effusive as he gets. Oh, uh, interesting. A few, a few days later, uh, I'm in my car driving in the Hollywood Hills, and there's a knock on the window of my car, and I look up. It's David Byrne on a bicycle, <laughs> and he's got a helmet on. He says, "Are you are you going back home soon?" Uh, I go, yeah. That place says, with the pool. There's 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 something <laughs> I I want you to hear, and and I go, oh okay, so. I go back to the house. David comes over about 30 minutes later and he, with his guitar, and he said, I just wrote this song and it's based on your story. I want you to hear it. And there in my living room, he played Radiohead. 
Wow. And I'm wow. going like, oh, wow. Uh, I go, he says, so is this okay? You, you know, tell me what you don't like about it. You know, always with David, <laughs> right, tell me yeah, what. Yeah. I said, David, it's amazing. It's it's an amazing, amazing song. And it, it thrills and moves me that, thank you. It's just beautiful. Right. Thank you. And so anyway, he called Beth in to talk to him about being the writer of this movie, True Stories. Beth goes over, meets with David, comes back over to the house a couple hours later and said, I have no idea what he was talking about. I have no idea. David lives in the strangest place, and I I, I can't, there are pictures all over the place. I don't know. But anyway, I told him that maybe he should call you because because you're, you're I love good. she's pawning him off on you yeah, yeah, all yeah. the time so you're good with you're good with structure and you're good with those kind of ideas and i thought maybe you know you could work with david because i had no idea what he wanted so david calls me on the phone almost at that moment and says uh are you doing anything beth said maybe you should come over so i said sure david uh yeah i'll come over so i went in and david had it's slightly an overstatement, but not an overstatement. He had this house in the Hollywood Hills that he was renting that had no furniture in it. <laughs> I mean, you walk in and it's like a house hunter's house before they work on it. It right. was empty it's a house. Flip, he, essentially. He had uh, one of those tables that you eat at in a cafeteria where the legs were pulled out, <laughs> and he had a couple folding chairs by the table. But there was, and I figured, like, well, David lives in New York, so probably he has all this stuff in New York. Every, but on the wall of his living room, on the wall, were about, again, I don't know the exact number. I didn't count them, but it seemed like 200 drawings uh, wow. on pieces of paper that were probably, oh, eight inches by eight inches. And these squares were taped all over the wall, and David is an amazing graphic artist. Uh, he went to the Rhode Island School of Design. The guy can draw. So he's he has all these pictures taped onto his wall and like some sort of serial killer. And he's psycho said, killer. Psycho killer. There. Can, yeah. can you make a movie out of these pictures? And oh, I boy. said, well, let me look at them. And for the next couple of hours, not a word was exchanged between David and I, but I went to picture to picture, to picture, writing notes down as to what each picture was, every damn picture on the wall. And and David was silent. He didn't interrupt me. That's another thing about David. Because you usually know, when, you, when you are presenting something, you get nervous about it and you're like, you know, you're trying to guess what the people are thinking and you, you'll interject and be like, well, what did you, wait, wait, this thing is a, a picture of, you know, you like start to talk a little, a little like what I'm doing right now, probably. <laughs> no, but but it was like not at all. It was you know, David. Totally we were silent. silent. We were silent for a long period of time, and then I finished. God, and this I is, this is like the dream between me and my wife, <laughs> like yeah. how I wish our relationship yeah. was. <laughs> and 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 then I said, I looked at it, and again, David didn't say like, "What's up?" I just he was waiting for me to talk first, and I said. I think maybe I could do something. This is what I'm going to do, David. Let me go home and work on this, and I'll bring you something tomorrow. 
and we'll see if it makes any sense. He says, oh, all right, all right. So I went home, and that night I wrote an outline out for the movie True Stories, and I wrote 35 pages. That night? That night. 35 pages of uh, partial scenes, character description, potential scenes, whatever. And I brought it over to David, and my presentation to him was this. I said, any movie you're going to do, the main event of the movie is going to be the songs. So what you need, rather than a plot, is you need a structure that songs can exist in, a reality that the songs can exist in. And in Texas uh, at this time, they were celebrating the sesquicentennial of various cities like San Antonio, Susquecentennial. Susquecentennial, which is 150, oh. is that what it is? Yeah, or 150, right? Something like that. Right. So like 125, 150 years, Somewhere, it's an yeah. odd number. And I said, so this would be this small town in Texas with all these different characters in it, celebrating one event that could bring them all together that you can do music to, uh, that you're that you have the freedom to go to these different places, and then we outlined, uh, and I had different scenes written down for a computer guy and a, and et cetera, et cetera. and and the, they're all characters that David created, the lying woman, right. uh, and the the part John Goodman ended up playing, and David said, I like this, I like this, so. He hired me to be the screenwriter, and then he called Beth up on the phone and said, would you work with Stephen as a screenwriter on True Stories? And she said yes. And so the catch even, was— Even though even though she didn't really understand it, she, right. she was like, hey, two paychecks? Yeah. Great. <laughs> right. And so the catch was, well, I think they wanted the, the uh, kind of— prize of having the Pulitzer Prize winner working on the sure. script. Yeah. You know, the, you know, she carried all the, uh, the, the kind of, pr- the well, weight of the, the weight creative of, partnership. Yeah. Little did David know he was talking to a future Ned Ryerson. No, nobody knew they were talking to a future Ned Ryerson or future. Don't look under the bed, <laughs> you know? And, and so what Beth and I did is we had, we had it. There was a catch. We had to deliver a first draft drum roll in 19 days why why so fast i don't know the producer said that there was a window open that that they were going to try to get this thing rolling to shoot before the next talking heads tour so uh, it had to do i think with david's schedule but we just we were at the stage in our pathetic careers that when somebody says yes you you don't question it you, right. you say, we'll do it in 19 days. Well, hey, I wrote uh, a draft of Scary Movie 3 in seven days, so I know it can be done. It can um, be done. It can be so. done. And we did We did it. We turned in a draft t- to David in 19 days. Uh, we finished the entire film, and then we did not hear from David for one calendar year. <laughs> oh, so God. Not, not a fiscal year, but not a calendar year. Heard nothing like Good job, guys. Thank you, guys. So, so, did, uh, so you turn in a script. You, you, did you, you, you must have like dropped the pages off at his house or something. Yeah. Did you, well, did you he, have a, he a was, copy of them? He was right around the corner. Well, this was when the age when the Mac 512 was just oh, being okay. invented. So we wrote this script in longhand. 
And right. then we transferred it to the computer. Uh, right. And was it so, was this like the computer that I started writing on that would only like save up to twenty pages at yes. a time, and then you have to erase it and yeah. then well, write we, the next twenty? We, on we it. had to get a separate hard drive. That back right. then the hard drive that had five hundred megabytes cost twenty five hundred dollars. Jeez, you know it was it was a whole different world back then. Yeah. We give David the script. We hear nothing for a year, and then. I run into were, David. Were you trying to call him or say like, hey, were you leaving messages or were you just like, hey, he'll, if he liked, maybe he didn't like it. Yeah, what was maybe your he didn't like it or whatever. I mean, he knew, he knew where we were or whatever. And, and, uh, you know, and I how heard, close was this script to what ended up being the movie? Oh, well, <laughs> the next time we saw David, like a year later, David goes, Oh, hi, guys. You know, we we went on the road. We were on tour. And I want you to know I rewrote the script and it's all pretty much different from what you did. But David completely changed the script. Uh, The format, the form is still the same. He changed all the dialogue. He changed a lot of the scenes. And a lot of the scenes are kind of changed to go with the songs that they ended up writing for the movie. Uh, I think Beth and I got to the point where we counted uh, the lines that we wrote that remained in the film. I think we each have about a dozen in the film that, that are still there or little scenes that we wrote yeah, that are still not horrible. there. Not, How, not like a total page one rewrite, but uh, David asked me to be in the movie to play the computer guy. I was busy at that point doing something else. So I said, I couldn't do it. He ends up shooting the movie. And then I get a call from David, one night, uh, again, after months of not talking, he says, um, I need to ask you a favor. And, and I go, sure, David, what, what is it? He says, well, I don't want to, the film to go out and say, you know, this is a movie directed by David Byrne, starring David Byrne, written by David Byrne. He says, I don't want to do that with songs written by David Byrne. can you or Beth be listed as the head screenwriter of, of the movie? And I, I, I kind of look at Beth like, sure, you know. I go, Beth, you want to? And she goes, no, no, because we really didn't have much to do with it. I said, well, if it helps you, you could say I'm the head screenwriter. So that's how I got head screenwriting credit. You know, sometimes you get the bear, sometimes right. the bear gets you. But the, 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 what's interesting is this all has to do with residuals, too. Like credit on the reason people fight over credit on on films is because the residuals play into that and whether you get paid or not. You know, so like David is basically giving up a, a I don't know, you know, how much the residuals ended up being on. You know, it's it's had a life for the last 34 years, but this is like a nice financial gift to you guys as well, isn't it? Well, it wasn't it wasn't a big financial gift because we were both very low on the financial gift totem pole. Uh, <laughs> however, you know, I still get a few residual. Just recently, I got residuals for True Stories. Uh, I still get residuals for Freddie Got Fingered. Hell Even though I'm cut out of every damn frame because <laughs> nice. I am, as you say, uh, my agent fought for me still to be in the credits. To be in the credits. Oh, so wow. you get the, so anyway. Uh, my dad who flew helicopters in King Kong in the 70s still gets residuals. Yeah. Did he really? Yeah. But late, later I ended up, right after we wrote True Stories, I ended up directing Beth's play in New York, uh, the Miss Firecracker Contest. 
and which uh, Holly Hunter starred in the that film. Is correct. Is that right? And she yes. starred in our production. Oh, wow. she starred in our play. And that she was she was who we wanted, you know, for years. Yeah. You know, we we one of the best actresses to ever do it. Yeah. Ulu Grossbard, uh, great director, uh, was a friend of Beth's at the time, too. And he said, I have read your Miss Firecracker contest and I know who needs to play Carnell Scott. And that is this actress, Holly Hunter. And so during the Crimes of the Heart in New York thing, you know, we had met Holly just before that all broke. And Holly was very excited about Beth doing Crimes of the Heart. And we said, well, the second play, her second place, Miss Firecracker contest, you know, we think you're the perfect person to be in this. So then it was a matter of keeping Holly busy to where she could be in the Miss Firecracker contest. Mm. So Holly ended up going in as uh, for Mary Beth Hurt. On we, She became the replacement cast in Crimes of the Heart, replacing Mary Beth Hurt on Broadway. And then we kept moving Holly to whatever thing Beth was working on to keep her busy until finally Miss Firecracker got a New York production. And David Byrne said that I could stay at his apartment in New York because he was going to go on the road if I wanted to. So I stayed at David's place uh, in, gosh, it wasn't even Tribeca, but it was in its south part of Manhattan. And he had no furniture. What is up with so I, in New York? In New York. So I stayed at his place in New York and he had a metal table and he had these metal chairs with holes in the back and holes in the seat. So if you sat in those chairs naked, which I'm not saying I did or I didn't, <laughs> but if you sat in the chairs naked, it would make red donut holes on your back and on your buttock, you know, made it look like you had smallpox. And and then I opened his closet and he had no clothes in the closet, but the white suit that he always wears, like even in uh what if, you know, what if he just had like 40 identical big suits from stopping? I, I think he does. Like that's a- <laughs> I think he does. But, but it, you and know, I would have taken one and he wouldn't even know. But, but it was great. You know, you know, I was so glad that it was that David let me stay there. That was awfully sweet. And the firecracker turned out to be a big success. That was yeah. great. It got a film if, deal. If, if he had said, by the way, I don't have any furniture, would you have stayed there? Or would you have found other arrangements? <laughs> you know, it, it never even crossed my mind that he would have no furniture in either place. All right. But but that was kind of David. You would think he would have wow. artistic furniture. But it just leads you to believe that he's he is like the alien having sex with the weed whacker. Like he, he might be a, a being from another... Uh, he might be, uh, you know, a galaxy or something that doesn't has no need for furniture because of the contortions his body turns into when no one is uh, when no eyes are upon him. He just like melts into a puddle or something like that. Yeah, it, it, you you would think, you know, Beth and I used to talk about that going like, do you think David is from another planet? Uh, <laughs> b- because he was, again, the work ethic in him was so powerful, more powerful than almost anyone I ever met, always working, always writing, always coming up with ideas for projects for. This sounds for, like me. <laughs> so, uh, wow. So all you have to do now is write a really good song. A really yeah, good well, song. yeah, I've, I, you know, I wrote one and then I realized it was just happy birthday. Oh, yeah. Especially yeah. I should have known from the lyrics, which were basically happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. 
Yeah, you know, I went written? to I, uh, I went to Beth Henley's uh, Christmas party one year. Oh wow! Yeah, I wonder if you were there, Stephen. It was the Christmas two thousand one. Are, are you still friendly with no? Beth? Well, no. well, oh, it, sorry. Well, well, it didn't. Well, no, it and it isn't that we're enemies. We're not. Right. It's just we we really we parted company, and that's, we parted you know. company. And I ended up getting. I've been married now to someone completely different than Beth Henley for thirty-one years, and I have uh, two children to prove it. So, right, you, you know, Beth, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna need that proof. So, if you don't mind bringing your children into the frame, and 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 you <laughs> and know, DNA tests and stuff, yeah, like that. all that. No yeah, well, I have a friend, Maury Povich, who can administer the DNA test if you like. In, in oh, right, thank you. And we could do it live. Sure, yeah. Reveal it, the results on air. In in some of my stories, you know, I've I kind of what I do is write true stories of the weird things that happen. Like like the story I just told you with David Byrne and the and Radiohead and how that was my way in it's very interesting, by the way, that the band Radiohead is based on your experience in yes, college in the seventies. Crazy. Yeah, because they were like what on a Friday. That was their original on a Friday, name. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. they loved David, which Byrne. is a lot like when we're taping this, <laughs> right? They loved David and they loved the song uh, Radiohead. So they had a band meeting and they changed their name. So that was band meeting, guys. We my, love David Byrne. My sideways entrance into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's incredible. I, I uh, another follow up to this story, do you still hear the transmissions that the song Radiohead was inspired by? Yeah, this is what I want to know as well. I I, I keep getting these things, but uh, what happened was, what I tried to explain to, to Beth and to people, you know, Beth wanted me to keep doing this because she thought it was really cool, was that the more that happened to me, the more I heard. And it wasn't that I had to sit next to somebody. It was like in one of those movies where you go into a restaurant and then you start hearing the sounds from all the tables and all the people mm-hmm. sitting at the tables. And it was nightmarish. And so I tried everything I could to stop it, you, you know, to stop to block doing, it out, to block it out. This is a out. lot like uh, uh, the the superhero Daredevil when his heightened senses uh, come around. He has to train himself his, uh, uh, of course, his uh, uh, the ninja that trained him, Stick, has to train him to uh, block everything out. Otherwise, it would drive him crazy. Do you relate to Daredevil? I I related to it in that Ben Affleck, right, sure. played Daredevil, and I sure. I did a series before Ben Affleck was Ben Affleck. You know, you know, we did uh, Against the Grain, and uh, he he was a a kid when we did that together. So a lot of similarities with Daredevil here. A lot of similarities with Daredevil. Uh, I, my wife, and you know, she always is like, when things get desperate, she says, "Use use it now. You have to do it now." <laughs> right. So, right. like, I. So it, you you can access it I can, occasionally. I I had a situation in which I had just finished doing a few TV shows together, and I felt enormous. Enormously successful. I had amassed seventeen thousand dollars, and I decided <laughs> I would take this money to the bank. And seventeen bozos. And yeah, and I, and so I got the check, and I got the deposit slip, and I'm going to be really healthy, and I'm going to ride the bike to the bank. And so I ride to the Bank of America, and I stand in line, get up, pull out the deposit slip, reach in my pocket, the checks are gone. Now they've all been signed. 
They've all been endorsed. 17 bozos gone. So I come home and I tell my my dear bride, Anne, I said, Anne, this thing happened. And she looked at me very seriously. She pulled out the chair. She says, sit down and do the thing you do with your head. Do it now. Now is when you need to do it. So I said, okay, don't get mad. I just need quiet. I sat down and I saw the three checks. They were in midair on a fence. And I thought, okay, I rode my bike to the bank. Where is there a chain link fence between here and the two miles to the bank? And I thought, wait a minute, I did ride under the freeway and the freeway is right by the Los Angeles River and the Los Angeles River is surrounded by a chain link fence. So I rode my bike back a mile trek toward the Bank of America. I got off under the freeway. I ran down the hill to where the Los Angeles River was going. There is a fence and there are the three checks being held up in the wind up against the fence. Come on. No. What? So I got the checks. Uh, The other horrible thing was Anne was, was doing a birthday for me. Uh, a birthday party for me, and I play the piano, right? And uh, mainly classical music, and I'm not very good. But as a birthday gift, uh, Anne did a little surprise. You know, she did a little surprise, but she wasn't going to tell me what was going to happen. So uh, she said, well, we're going to go out to lunch, and we're going to have a birthday gift you know, your birthday gift. And I said, okay, and you know, all the time you keep talking about the ESP thing. And I know I'm telling you, I don't have it. I think the whole thing of the checks is that some part of my brain saw those checks right. leave my pocket when I was riding my bike and my brain stored that image and brought it back later. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take out a pen right now and I'm going to take out a piece of paper and I see what my birthday gift is, and I'm going to write it down on a piece of paper. I'm going to seal it, which I did. I'm putting it on your computer, and we'll all come back home, and we'll have a big laugh about it. And what I wrote down on the piece of paper was, I am going to drive to Disney Hall. You've arranged for me to play the grand piano on stage at Disney <laughs> Hall. And, and, uh, and so... That's what I wrote down. Right. It's laughable. Right. It's right. laughable. You so, saw that image in your head, though, and you wrote I it I saw down. it. I wrote it all down. So Anne says, okay, well, we're going to have lunch first. So, uh, you know, we're going to be meeting someone. So maybe if you dressed up like you're, you're uh, seeing an important person. So maybe if you wore a suit and a tie or something. I said, okay, okay. And I said, so where do I go? She says, well, why, you know. There's a nice little restaurant I know downtown. Uh, it's across <laughs> from Disney Hall. And suddenly the blood runs out of my head. I go, uh, uh, okay, okay. She said, you know, it's so expensive to do the parking here at the restaurant. Why don't you just do the parking under Disney Hall? And I'm going, mother uh, And wow. so I, I park the car down there. Uh, we go up the elevator and there is the plant director of Disney Hall waiting for me at the elevator. My friend Robert Brinkman, cinematographer, is there with his camera and my piano music. 
And he said, we have it arranged for you to play the grand piano in Disney Hall. And I I am about to drop dead now because I'm thinking like, I am going to be so killed when I go home. So I go in and I play, and Robert filmed it. I I go and I play for about an hour of the piano on, on the stage of Disney Hall. It was an unforgettable experience. It was absolutely magnificent. We go home. Anne opens the envelope and is absolutely furious <laughs> that I must have been on her computer looking at her right. emails. To be like a snoop. To be Just... like a snoop, that I had somehow ruined the whole birthday, that it was... and. Wow, but this is incredible. But, but she true. believes you that you didn't do that, and <laughs> I think like maybe any not. married. What a, what a weird cover story this would <laughs> we, be. Though we, we've been we've been married for thirty one years, <laughs> and you know, at that point, you believe your partner certainly more than fifty percent, but less than a hundred. <laughs> right, right. So, right, so sure, you, sure. you you go like, yeah, okay. I think there's three percent of her that believes maybe I still looked at her emails. Right. Can I ask, are you getting anything from Adam about when he went to a drive-in movie theater and he found an envelope on the ground uh, that, what was in the envelope originally, Adam? It was, yeah, we- Don't tell the whole story, but originally- Nothing. Nothing was in the envelope. He went to the drive-in movie theater. They said, hey, we need $19 or or $9 or something for you guys to come into the to see the movie. He went back to the envelope and $9 was in the envelope. You're absolutely kidding. No, no, this this is the most incredible story that 11 years old. He's never been able to figure out why. Are you getting anything from that? Well, just my logic would tell me that the standard entrance price was $9. And so some mother gave for three people. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that so somebody someone... gave their their they had their money to go to that event that cost that amount and that fell out of their pocket. Okay, but why? But so it was a different envelope, is what you're saying. That's what that's the image that you're getting is that it was. I, a, I I'm the, getting no image at all. You're getting no. I'm image. just God. I'm just using I'm just using logic here. What, what about who stole all my DVDs in no, my old condo? Are you getting any of that? Adam, that was probably that was that, Adam. That oh, you motherfucker, Stephen! How dare yeah. you? Yeah. <laughs> Well, this is incredible, Stephen. I I can't thank you enough for for being on the show. This is these are incredible stories. You, uh, uh, I mean, wow! So so much background on this that you you wouldn't even know from watching the film. Just in, incredible stuff, and your connections to Radiohead and just uh, amazing yeah, it's stuff. It's amazing, we, truly. We we can't thank you enough. I mean, you are truly a film lover. And this is the show where we love films. So, uh, you know, this is going together like peanut butter and jelly, which is, a, uh, you know, a reference from our other show. I love sandwiches, um, which also ties into my Broadway experiences. I love eating sandwiches at Broadway is a different show that we do. But Stink, um, stinky eggs, <laughs> stinky eggs. is a to- That's totally different, by the way. That's a totally <laughs> different show. But Stephen, thank you so much. I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, uh, thanks, we, man. We, we need to take a break. When we come back, Adam and I will uh, just uh, wrap up and talk about our thoughts about uh, true stories. But we're going to take a break. Thank you so much, Stephen. We will be right back with more I Love Films after this.
Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome back. I love films. This is Cocktail Desperado, which is a song that plays in the film I love. I love. No, this is I Love Films. And we're talking about the film True Stories. But I love true stories. Uh, welcome back, uh, Stephen. Uh, 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 an incredible guest, right, Adam? Oh, yeah. I mean, the guy is, uh, he has stories. Um, and they're all true stories, mm-hmm. much like this. I mean, and, and st- strangely enough, that's what this film sort of covers is uh, uh, these kind of made up stories about people with with uh, larger than life things that happen to them in this tiny town in Texas, Virgil, Texas. So he almost could be a character in the film. Celebrating, uh, was it Specialness Day? What, what was the, <laughs> the yeah, uh, big celebration there? <laughs> they're leading up to and the celebration so, of specialness to mark the celebration of 50th anniversary yeah, yeah, yeah. of texas's independence um all right let's talk about the film uh came out in 1986 and uh did you watch it when it when it came out adam yeah i did but i can't remember if i went to the theater to see it i can't remember um because it was a big deal i know particularly through my brother, which is where I kind of right. figured out what was cool and not, especially with music, and through him. Well, we're was, not talking about music. We're talking about film. Right, but my reason for going to see True Stories would have been through Talking Heads fandom, which was through my brother. And so I know he was super excited and definitely went to see it. I don't remember if I went to see it or if I... Eventually saw it on VHS. I can't. Weirdly enough, when it came out, I was hyped for it. And I got that Time magazine, you know, where he was Rock's Renaissance man. Uh And I loved Stop Making Sense. And um, I think uh, Something Wild came out the same year. um, And I love that film. And so I was like prime person. I was in the demographic of of people that they were trying to market this to. And something happened where it came out and maybe it got a bad review that I read or something like that. And so I just was like, eh, I'll just skip it. And I didn't watch it until it was on, I think, first on VHS down the line. And this is the third time that I saw it when I watched it yesterday. Um, So I watched it on VHS and then I watched it in a theater and then I watched it uh, yesterday here at home. But yeah, weird that I just, I'm a huge Talking Heads fan, but also the record came out and wasn't that big of a hit. And so I think I just, kind of skipped it plus look i'm in high school and the hormones are raging and i you know and i'm just like far more interested in i was gonna say girls and cars but really it's just drama (laughs) and comic books (laughs) but the, the weird thing is i remember really being into the album and the movie in the summer of 87 so that must mean okay that i saw it on vhs vhs and it seemed like it was really absorbing into culture that summer as well. Like 
The songs were still on MTV. The movie was kind of affecting culture a little bit. It must have been like a VHS thing. It took yeah. a while to marinate. Well, the videos that they made, I think, three videos out of it, which were all, and they're all kind of in the movie too, like or at least yeah. portions of them are wild in the movie. Wild, wild, wild. Um, so yeah, so I've seen it three times at this point and had probably three different experiences with it each time because each of them were maybe a decade apart. Um, I saw it in the, probably the early nineties, uh, on VHS. Um, and for the first time, for the first time. And I think I was relatively underwhelmed by it. Yeah. The first time I watched it. The second time I watched it was um, in a theater um, I hosted probably 10 years ago, 11, 12 years ago. I I hosted a a series of film screenings at uh, a local theater, Santa Family, where I would have comedians pick their favorite films and would interview them about them, usually before the film, before people watched it. And um, Tim and Eric, Tim Heidecker and Eric Wareheim, uh, picked true stories mm-hmm. and um, they it's their favorite film. And what I didn't know and, and was that it has totally influenced their work and their aesthetic. Yeah. Um, so, so I watched it then this is a decade ago and again, was relatively underwhelmed by it yeah. for whatever reason. And then um, this time when I watched it yesterday, Maybe my expectations were different or something, but I had a, a much more... Also, it was during the day when, you know, I'm not sitting there in a theater wanting to be entertained or something. I was just kind of like watching it. It was a much more pleasant experience for hmm. me. In what, what what do you mean? Like you, you thought it was better or funnier or more interesting? I thought it, I thought it was way more interesting this time than before when I was maybe a little more impatient for it. Like this time it's languid pace. Essentially, you know, the film doesn't have much in the, in, in terms of narrative structure. No, it's um, a, ser- it's, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of vignettes yeah. strung together. And, uh, I, I was watching the best of, and, and I guess Mr. Burns before he, um, approached Beth Henley and, and Steven, he tried to get the writer of Nashville, uh, uh Robert sure. Altman's Nashville to write it. And she, uh, took a look at all of his pictures similarly to what Stephen and Beth did. And um, instead, she said, you don't need a, someone to write it. You should just write it yourself. Um, but she did give him a little piece of advice, which was, he said, well, how did you get all these stories in Nashville? They're all separate stories. How did you get them to work together? Yeah. And she said, she said, well, in Nashville, we found that emotion would connect the scenes. So not necessarily storytelling where in one scene something happens and then you continue to tell the story in the next scene with a bunch of different characters, but the emotions were the same. And so it made it all make sense somehow. Mm. And that's, and that's what he was trying to do here in true stories, which I thought was interesting. I don't know what it was about it yesterday, but I, I, I was far more receptive to it and far more in the mood for it. And the whole aesthetic I found now a little more charming. Uh, maybe I've been, too cynical in the mm-hmm. past for it, but uh, it, it it definitely doesn't feel like a film where Mr. Burns is making fun of of small town Texas people. It sound it seems a little more like a gentle, like affectionate, uh, affectionate. Yes, whereas I think even with like Tim and Eric stuff, 
it straddles the line of like use because the 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 things that are similar with Tim and Eric's work in the aesthetic are using real people as actors mm-hmm. um and using eccentric weirdos as actors yeah and I think their work always straddles the line of like making fun of the people and being a celebration of the people but which I'm always a little like eh, I don't know but um but for true stories I definitely felt like it was it, it was uh on the side of affectionate this time. Hmm. That's it? Huh? No, I mean that's that's interesting because I thought it was certainly on the side of of making fun. Yeah, but not in a not in a totally sort of derogatory way. I feel like it was it's particularly for the time it was it was uh I think it ended up being really influential as far as look at how ridiculous this is and the celebration of Americanness and it definitely does feel like a New York artist yes examining Americana in yes. a way but and I think and a lot of it at the time is a little dated too to sort of these observations that now feel well worn like especially mm-hmm. at the time I remember at the time being sick of every hot dogs what the hot dogs and the hot dog buns that's like a standard comedian's riff yeah they they talk about oh why are hot dogs sold in packs of 10 and hot dog buns are sold in packs of 12 you know that that's like a standard yeah like uh, losing the socks in the dryer but i i i I was thinking that at the time even i was sick sick of everyone having to comment on televangelists yes televangelists i i remember that being so old hat yeah but in the late 80s that oh my God. Uh, that I remember when um one of my favorite bands Crowded House um came out with their single Chocolate Cake in 1991 mm-hmm. uh I thought it was the worst Crowded House song I'd ever heard because it talked about Tammy Tammy uh, Faye Baker and 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 I was like people in other countries I remember being on a Crowded House message board and much like you on your REM message boards and someone in Australia was like this is this song is so funny. What are you talking about? I'm like, you don't understand. In America, we've had eight to ten years already of this yeah. shit. Like, it's not funny anymore to us. And the person, the the person in Australia, going, yeah, I guess some people just don't get it. Um, <laughs> and it's like, no, <laughs> no, we get it. We've gotten it too much. So I I understand what you the mean. God, about the God I know isn't short of cash, Mister. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I get it. But you, you know what's interesting, though? I, I did watch the deleted scenes in the making of on the the really exceptional Criterion box set of the film. Do you work for Criterion? Um, I do. Um, I'd love to. Actually, I'm angling to get into that closet. I think if we mention them enough, maybe some of our listeners might uh, start tagging them so that you and I can go in the closet. Look, I realize you could go in your the closet by yourself. They'll invite you there. I just want some of that runoff, some of those runoff Blu-rays that I can get as being your side piece. That would be incredible. Um, but but watching the making of, there were certain things that they filmed that they cut out because Mr. Burns thought it was too cynical or too mean, mm-hmm. and he didn't want to... He Like, there's a really... In the talent show portion, which is sort of the climax of the film, if you can really call something a climax in this film, but there's... Um, the thing they cut out was a uh, a local person who would put on a presentation of how not to get abducted if you're a, a kid. Yeah. 
And so he does a whole like theatrical thing involving like actors of, of how, if you're ever in a situation, what you're supposed to do. And it's really dry and very Southern and, and he, Mr. Burns cut it out because it, it was too dark and he wanted everything to be more affectionate, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So I, I, for some reason, the affection really shone yeah, through it's sweet. on this viewing for me. It's sweet. I think my main issue with it is that there's nothing in it that's, that grounds it for me. Like it's all like Swoozy Kurtz. Weirdness. In, yeah. Swoozy Kurtz not leaving the bed is a cool idea, but. I, there was nothing uh, kind of grounding it for me. So the whole well, also nothing. There's nothing really interesting about her scenes necessarily. No. She's she's there's just no sitting there. It's just her. she's well. Conflict is the essence of drama, as we've always said on this Absolutely. show. Absolutely. If you see a gun in the first act, I mean, and Chekhov uh, paging Mister Chekhov. <laughs> we found your gun. Oh my goodness. Oh my god. Um, uh-huh. Speaking of actors, though, uh, John Goodman. I terrific. think it's a really They're terrific gr- performance. Spalding Gray, too. I, I love Spalding Gray. Spalding Gray. Uh, I loved what he was doing with his hands in, in the making of they talk about how Mr. Burns talks about how politicians sprinkle that stuff in moderation throughout their speeches, like almost like Bill Clinton with the thumb and all this kind of stuff, all these mm-hmm. weird hand gestures. But if someone were to really focus on them and do them continually throughout a speech how weird it would be and that's what spalding gray is doing in this interesting which is interesting but john goodman um essentially had done practically nothing at this point um but the casting director loved him john and john goodman he was i think he was on she was saying he was on broadway uh maybe in big river at the time and the casting director loved him and was like you got to see John Goodman he is the lead of this and he auditioned once and and they said that both he and Mr. Burns are both awkward kind of like mm-hmm. personally and so they didn't hit it off and Mr. Burns was like I don't know and she said well I'll tell you what he's going to do he's going to come back he's going to re-audition for you and he's going to blow you away and you're going to end up casting him in this right and Mr. Burns was like okay and then he came back and blew everyone away and um, it, it, it really is interesting to see a film where he's just like really going for it, yeah. you know, like yeah. he's, he's, he's giving 110%, especially in the lip sync scene. Yeah. He's, he's happy just to have a big role a big in a movie. High profile <laughs> yeah. gig. It's really, it's really funny. This is before raising Arizona, obviously. And he got in with the Coen brothers and before and, Roseanne. And before Roseanne. Too, right? Yeah. So. That's really good. But the other actor that I thought was really funny is the person who plays the lying woman, uh, Joe Harvey Allen. So essentially her story is that she's from Texas and she, she, the casting director knew of her because she did a one woman show down in Long Beach about Texas where she just played like crazy caricatures of Texas people and she, and the casting director said to Mr. Burns, you got to go down and see her. So Mr. Burns went down to Long Beach, drove down, saw her play and was like, hey, I think uh, you'd be really good for the, the part in this movie and wrote down his number on a McDonald's bag, <laughs> gave it to her. She lost it. And then, but finally somehow like through the casting director, got back to him and said, yes, I will do your movie and I want to do every female part in it. 
and, and Mr. Burns is like, uh, no, no, I think you'll just do the one part in it. And she's like, all right. And just did the one, but she like improved a lot of her lines and just threw in a bunch of crazy stuff to the point where she would bring in pages every single day that she had written which can sound obnoxious, but they were so funny and so good, they ended up shooting them Wait, all. Wait, which uh, actor is this? The, the, this is the lying woman who's always lying about her but experiences. Is, it An- is that Annie McEnroe or is No, it- no, that's Joe, Joe Harvey Allen. Okay, Joe Harvey Allen. So she she would she would not she would just be in the background of certain scenes, like uh, the scene in the church, but she would bring in pages and go, "Hey, I decided I should talk in this scene." And do this monologue. And they would read the monologues and they'd go, yep, these are good. Okay, oh, let's wow. set up a camera and shoot you. <laughs> and which is just such a funny collaborative way to do a movie, which I, I and, and the fact that they loved it and weren't annoyed by it. Is... No, that's cool. She must be like a, a local Texas actress because she's in all these movies that look like they probably shot and. Yeah, she's in. Well, she's in a bunch like fried green tomatoes and and all the pretty horses and stuff. But I I I think she she moved to L.A. and was just like a weird performance artist who was doing stuff with slideshows and and stuff like that. That David Byrne really felt uh, like a kindred spirit in a way, hmm. and just like an eccentric, almost like Marilyn Rice Cub. When I first saw her, she yeah. was doing like a, a bunch of transparency one woman shows and stuff, which was really interesting. Um, there's also Tita Lariva is in it who, um, started out in the plugs, which was the band that did all the music for repo man. Oh yeah. And he, he went on to, um, score a lot of Robert Rodriguez's movies, uh, with Tito and the tarantulas. And, um, he sort of plays, he plays Steven's part in a way of, he's the guy who hears transmissions from people's heads. Okay. Um, so in uh, in Swoozy Kurtz we mentioned and then Pop Staples from the Staples singers um Mr. Burns lured him into it by uh, cuz he didn't want to do anything that was satanic because he's playing a voodoo priest almost and Mr. Burns was like oh no 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 this is uh it's more of a gentle like he's a good guy who just wants to help his friend <laughs> <laughs> and so Pop Staples is like okay I get it <laughs> So he's great at Spalding Gray, of course. The late great Spalding Gray is really funny, and so a really good cast. I think if you if you go into it with your expectations of being like, "Hey, nothing's going to happen in the movie," yeah, it's just almost like an art piece of vignettes that are interestingly shot. Then um, I, I I had a pleasant experience this time. Yeah, I I guess so. I I I agree. It's a it's a cool like artifact, um, but. As far as like a movie, it you know it was it was great for the time, and um, I love the music and stuff. But right, not uh, not incredible, not gr- for not, me. not gripping. No, uh, but that's fine. Not like a film like The Godfather. Oh my God, no. Um, the Godfather, or even and this is controversial, but Godfather Part Two. That's a great film, but surely not better than Godfather One. I don't know. See, that's the thing. What? A sequel being better than the original? People usually think of sequels as being inferior, but I'll put it out there that Godfather 2 might even be better than the first one. That is a controversial hot take. 
I don't know that I agree, but you're getting me to think about it in okay. a totally different way. I appreciate it. I, I know that it's a crazy thing to say. Uh, and part three, too. Maybe even better than the first two. B- better than both of them combined, I think. Absolutely. And Godfather 4, even though it's never been made, maybe that would be better. Well, some films could be considered Godfather 4. Sure. You know what I mean? If yeah. you really look at it, you know, in a certain way, like uh, the adventures of Lava Girl and Shark Boy in that, 3D. I was going to say the the Jason Segel Muppets. Yeah. The Jonathan Livingston Segel. Absolutely. Um, the Seagull, the Chekhov play. Yeah, Chekhov. Speaking of, hey, Chekhov, we're talking about your Seagull. Calling Chekhov's gun. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, Mr. Burns got, uh, as as they say on the show that I mentioned uh, when we were talking to Demi at uh we were both on um, our friend's show called Blank Check. Griffin and David have a show called Blank Check where they talk about... Uh, the blank check that certain directors get to make whatever they want at a certain point. Uh-huh. Mr. Burns, after the success of Stop Making Sense, I think they mentioned that he got his blank check of where, all right, here's $3 million, just go make what you want. Yeah. And uh, he cashed that check. And, and you know, I don't know that he never got another chance to make another film or or if he just decided to pass on making further films. But I think this one wasn't necessarily incredibly successful at the box office or the BO as we call it. Yeah. The boffo BO. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know either. Although, uh, American utopia, quite successful, quite good, quite good. But he did not uh, direct that obviously, but, um, and he's never, never directed another film. Who knows why? Maybe he doesn't want to. It's, it's entirely possible. He did. He did. Uh, I read that he considered himself to be more of a filmmaker than a musician after this. <laughs> Which, For how considering long? He, <laughs> yeah, he never made another one. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how long that ended up happening. But uh, an interesting, uh, uh, you know, the, this this film is the reason why they didn't play Live Aid, Talking Heads, because he was he thought this film was going to be way more important than Live Aid and was going to make the band Talking Heads like even more famous. And it did not. It kind of like almost nailed, put the nail in the coffin for them, um, which is what you want to do with coffins. Certainly you want to put those nails in them so the bodies don't get out. Did they really you think it really like almost put the like broke up the band? I well, guess I, don't, did, I guess I, I don't know about the personal personal element of it, but I certainly think Talking Heads were no longer considered um, to be worthy of the attention they were getting, like the Time Magazine cover and all that. Because you know the what I mean? album wasn't a huge hit, so because the album wasn't a hit and the film wasn't a hit, so it was kind of like, oh, all right, well that that was a whiff. Yeah. Um. So I think like this is. The the right before True Stories came out was the peak of how much attention the mainstream media or the lamestream media, let's be honest, um, was paying to Talking Heads. And after this, it was kind of like, oh, okay, we don't need to do these major covers with them anymore, or all these like incredible pieces on them anymore, because uh, it wasn't a hit. Yeah. Um, anything else we want to say about true stories here, Adam? I don't, I don't think so. I think, uh, I think that might be it for this episode of, uh, I love films. All right. Well, you know, until next time, I hope you see a film. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
Good app. Great app. Wow. Longer than Good usual. Shit. But terrific. definitely longer than yeah. Some some terrific stuff. Well, um, that's gonna do it for this episode of uh, you talking talking heads to my talking head. Boy, we didn't talk about anything on this episode. No, but I think uh, I think maybe we will next time, huh? What maybe we'll next time. Next time we're going to talk about uh, the the. Uh, it'll be our final episode. We're talking about uh, naked or naked, as they say. Naked, but naked. Ugh. We're going to be talking about Stephen sitting on that chair. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sitting on David Burns. I wonder if David Byrne knows that Stephen rubbed his balls all over his chair. <laughs> his balls fell through those little but holes. He, he does now. He's obviously listening. Um, all right. That's going to do it for us. We will see you next time on the show. And until then, we certainly hope that you have found what you're looking for. Bye. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.